What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Que tu fais là T'as rien. Non, 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 pas ici, c'est pas possible. Oh, mais pourquoi ah, Mais tu cries trop fort, tu le sais bien. De sa vie, toi. Dans ce cas, éteins la lumière. Pourquoi Parce que je suis pas encore guérie. En effet, tu es mieux faite pour l'amour que pour jouer à la guerre. Comment me trouvez-vous, Raphaël Sinistre. C'est un chapeau le charmant et féminé. Oh, excellence. C'était l'ambassadeur des États-Unis. L'ambassadeur des états unis Et alors, c'est les quatrièmes ambassadeurs qu'on arrête Le résultat, c'est qu'ils bombardent leurs propres troupes au moins une fois par semaine. Mais non, madame. S'ils bombardent leurs propres troupes, c'est qu'ils ont leur raison. Vous avez besoin d'un jardinier, n'est-ce pas ah, Oui, 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 en effet. Oui. Alors, voilà. Je sollicite ce poste. Enfin, monseigneur. Ne vous étonnez pas, chère madame. Vous savez, l'Église a beaucoup changé. Nous, vous savez, nous ne sommes pas contre les étudiants. Au contraire. Mais qu'est-ce que vous faites quand vous avez une chambre envahie par les mouches Vous prenez une tapette et pam, pam Plus de mouches. J'ai lu que Miranda détient le record du monde du nombre d'homicides par tête d'habitants. Est-ce vrai Non, colonel. Vous vous trompez. Pas du tout. Il paraît qu'on tue pour un oui, pour un non, gratuitement. C'est à l'époque où la police, elle essaya toute force de se faire aimer par la population. Tu te rappelles Vous devez les relâcher immédiatement. Mais enfin, commissaire, on n'arrête pas les gens comme ça. Qu'est-ce que ça veut dire Allez, on va tout ça. Non, enfin. Allez. Relâchez vos prisonniers et ne cherchez pas à savoir pourquoi.
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me this week, Mr. Mike White. I had the weirdest dream about this episode. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> this week is the first of two shows dedicated to our favorite films of all time, and it's my turn this week. So we're going to be talking about Louis Bunuel's 1972 film, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. It's plot, kind of simple if you want to call it a plot. Two couples and two friends, six total, keep trying to meet for dinner or lunch or coffee, but something always seems to get in the way. At the same time, there are dreams, or dreams within dreams, maybe. The film was given the Best Foreign Film Oscar in 1973 and was nominated for the Screenplay Award that year as well. For me, the movie plays on the ideas of lack of perspective and hypocrisy, and at the same time, highlighting a constant in the human condition, just never quite being satisfied. Of course, that just scratches the surface. So, Mike, when did you first see The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and what did you think? I saw this one for the first time about two weeks ago, and I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to see. Um, I enjoyed the kind of dream logic that the film has. It kept surprising me when things ended up being dreams, and really, it was tough to tell sometimes, you know, what if the entire movie was supposed to be a dream or not, and I really... I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. So I, I was right there with it. I rewatched it again last night and enjoyed it even more the second time. See, I thought you would dig this because when we did uh, Makaveyev stuff, when we talked about WR and Sweet Movie and things like that, I think that this sort of fits into that same sort of uh, wheelhouse in some ways, although Makaveyev is very much trying to push uh, political stuff. And if you read interviews or hear interviews with Bunuel, um, he just says that it doesn't mean anything, and he doesn't like to talk about the ideas. Yeah, kind of David Lynchish in that way. Exactly. I, I mean, for me, I think the reason why it works best and stands out for me as the um, as my favorite of all of his films, and it's really hard for me to pick a favorite of of Bunuel's films, and especially his later work from about 1960 uh, to the end of his life. Uh, about 19, he died in 83, but his last film was in 1978. Um, that like 18 year period is just one film after another that he just is pushing stuff. He's doing great work. And one has to also consider that that period, he was in his 60s and 70s, and he was going deaf. So to me, he's always been one of these artists that I've appreciated that shows that art is not just the place of the young. I think that in American culture, we have this idea that, oh, well, you know, if you're a musician or you're a writer or you're a painter or whatever – you need to do that in your 20s and 30s. And then by the time you get into your 40s or 50s or whatever, you're you're spent out. There's there's nothing left. And I think that uh, Bunuel's career shows that you can do really great work in your 20s, as he did with Ashen Andalou and uh, Land Without Bread and um, Lage d'Or, uh, two of which he worked with uh, Salvador Dali on. And you'll hear more about sort of his uh, – his exploits in history, but it also shows that even when you're going deaf <laughs> in your late seventies, you can still create great work. Which is funny because sound plays such an important part in Discreet Charm, and just the way that he's got these different kind of soundscapes going on in the film. And then I like the parts where characters can't hear what the other ones are saying. You know, there's planes flying overhead. There's teletype machines or, or typewriters that are getting really loud, you know, blocking out the dialogue for us to hear. And I like how he plays on that in the film itself. 
I think a lot of that plays into the idea of vanity and the idea of conventional plot, but we'll get into that in a little while. So before we get into the main part of Discrete Charm Bourgeoisie, I thought what we would do is we'd go to our first interview. And in order to do that, to sort of give you some context into who Bunuel was, his lifetimes and work, I talked to biographer John Baxter. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. They're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Sorry, G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am, I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Monday and whooped Tuesday and put Wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds, Sarah Jones, son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation cinema and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forrester, Brian Trenchard Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents... And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life.
It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick, the manager said you'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back. For just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Meller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit adventuresofvhs.com. My name's John Baxter. I, I write. Uh, I write various things. I've written a lot about the cinema, uh, as you know, biographies of, uh, well, in, in, in chronological order, um, Federico Fellini, Louis Bunuel, Steven Spielberg, uh, George Lucas, Woody Allen, Stanley Kubrick, Robert De Niro. Nero, uh, most recently Joseph von Sternberg, which I think will probably finish finish my line of biographies. Uh, at the moment, I live in Paris and I mainly write about um, Parisian subjects, books about well, my, my life in Paris, basically. Yeah, I was looking at the um, the list on your website of the various things you've written and. You have done quite a few things over your time. I was I was quite amazed. Oh, I started early. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. So, um, getting into uh, Louis Bunuel, um, do you remember when you decided that you thought it would be a good subject uh, for a biography? Oh well, uh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's uh, it, it's so obvious a subject. I was surprised that that no one had done uh, a really serious biography. The only book that existed of any of any uh, length was um, Jean Claude Carrière's uh, version of his life, uh, My Last Breath, which which uh, was sort of sold as as a as a a kind of autobiography but but uh, Carrier would be the first person to to uh, to tell you that it it really wasn't it was it was his uh, remembrances of conversations uh with Boonwell which for, of which he'd not made any notes uh so he was working from memory and and uh, there were many inaccuracies and there were gaps and, and there were whole areas where as he and I talked about it he said yes I, I never really got to the bottom of that or um, yes I wondered about that as well so I thought there's obviously a need for uh, a, a proper uh, biography and fortunately the Fellini book had done very well 
helped by the fact that Fellini died when it sort of almost the moment it came out. So my publisher was uh, was uh, quite happy to commission me to do the Boonwell, uh, though in the end it took it took far more time and effort than than I'd expected, and I had to travel. Uh, to Mexico and to Spain uh, and to do some work in Hollywood and um, so on. So uh, it was great fun, but it was uh, it, it was um, a labor of love, essentially. Yeah, I would have to say that um, it seems that Bunuel's stature has grown with time. Um, when you were doing the book, I mean, he was obviously known to cinephiles and, and some people who are really into foreign film, but, um, you know, how how was sort of the market for him at the time? I mean, was he sort of uh, waiting to be rediscovered or reappreciated? I think so. It coincided with, uh, you know, it's this thing of the zeitgeist, isn't it? You know, you, you sense that something is in the air and you get drawn along into it. And I was certainly, I wasn't the only person uh, taking a new interest in, in Boonwell. Um, there, there were people uh, in Mexico starting to do work uh, and uh, there was uh, some of the Spanish um, filmmakers were beginning to see Boonwell as as really being the sort of patron saint, if you like, of uh, of, of Hispanic uh, cinema. Um, and of course, the films were starting to reappear. There was a very good retrospective at the Cinémathèque Française of um, early Boonwell, particularly those Mexican films. I'd seen some of those when I was in Mexico City, but certain others just weren't available. And so it was great to to see them, however trivial most of them were. They still filled in the gaps uh, in in the scholarship. And then being able to work at the um, at the Cinematheque on the the um, uh, documents that had been deposited uh, over the years about Boonwell, uh, there was um, the Cinematheque did a, a publication in which they reproduced a number of letters and, and gave indications of others that they had. So uh, I was able to go to Femis, which was the the uh, sort of uh, I don't know what you call it. The, uh, um, they call it the high the high studies institute of of cinema and uh, to to look at things like well the original screenplay of um, of Shandandaloo for instance. So yeah, I, I was very fortunate that I was writing the book just as this material was uh, was beginning to reemerge. Well, let's talk a bit about his early life uh, growing up in Spain and before he got into filmmaking. Um, can you give us, you know, sort of a sketch of uh, where he came from and who he was at that time? Yeah, he was an extraordinarily interesting man. When I went to Calanda, I was able to get some real sense of this and also in Madrid because, you know, he was so casual uh, a person. Uh, so he always dressed in whatever, you know, he, he liked and he, he was very, very uncommunicative and was mostly uh, drunk uh, or at least a little, a little squiffy that you forget that he was born actually into quite a rich, very well-respected family. He, he was what they called a senorito, which was a landowner, a, a wealthy, a part of a, a wealthy family. His father was, uh, had made a fortune um, in Cuba. Uh, in business and had come back to uh, to Spain, married a very pretty much younger woman. Um, and, and as he said, uh, my father did nothing. 
My father just hung around all day. Uh, uh, he was a genuine senorito, an aristocrat of, you know, the sort that doesn't exist anymore. It's more like a sort of 18th century aristocrat before the French Revolution, where they were carried everywhere. And the, the art of uh, living was to do absolutely nothing. Uh, as, as he said, you know, if, if I went anywhere, for instance, to a music lesson, I had a servant to carry my violin. Uh, so his father died when he was quite young, and he grew up uh, with his sisters under the under the the control of his mother, who was a a very tough cookie. And so he grew up in in a family of women, which I think forced him into a sort of reflexive uh, macho machismo, which which became one of the ruling elements of his life. Uh, his father had wanted him to, if he had to take a job, he wanted him to take a job that was completely worthless, pointless. Uh, and so he, he thought maybe he should become an engineer. So if he became an engineer, then he could sort of work on the family estate and things like that. Wouldn't actually have to, you know, go out and earn money. But, but Boonwell wanted to study entomology, insects. And so, uh, they sent him off to Madrid. Uh, to um, study, and he started to live in this place called the Residencia, and that's, of course, where his life changed. So, I mean, to recap what, a, what a, his childhood, uh, I think it's it, it was the childhood of a wealthy young man who was not trained to be a professional, uh, and he had all the preoccupations of wealthy young wasters, if you like, of, 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 of that. That period that uh, uh, he drank a lot, he, he fooled around a lot. He was very sexually repressed. Um, as he said, you can have sex, but in my class, you can have sex either in marriage or the brothel. And so he, he did spend a certain amount of time roistering in, in bars and brothels. And, and I think he carried that into his, um, into his student days and, and, and of course, into, into his work as a filmmaker. I pared down a lot of my books when I recently moved, and your book is one of the few that I, I kept. Like, I kept a couple of dozen books, and it, it's one that I love to go back to that and Of course, my last sigh, I'm a big Buñuel fan. And um, it just, like, talking about that younger years in, in, the, in the residencia with him, and then he meets a, a cadre of, of like-minded people and artists, and uh, these people, of course, would go on to become legends in their own right. Exactly. Yes, it, it was the most extraordinary good fortune that he should have been in the residencia at the same time as Salvador Dali and, and of Gabriel Garcia Lorca. Uh, extraordinary triumvirate. It's very difficult to see that they have anything in in common at all. Uh, but but, but uh, they were they were part of uh, of this very creative uh, student group. Group um, where, where this residency was very much like a, 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 an Oxford or Cambridge college. In fact, that was that was more or less the model. Uh, they wanted that idea of people who learned at their own speed, uh, who didn't actually have to go to lectures and classes, but were free to express themselves. 
and it very quickly became evident that that Lorca was the was the great motive spirit and the real talent. Dali was younger and coming along, but but everybody recognised that he was an extraordinary creator and would be would be wonderful sometime. And Boonwell in this in this context really was the also ran. He didn't have any particular talent, um, and he felt very much. Uh, the the sort of third wheel, literally, and he um, he didn't recover from that for quite a long time. He all the time he spent in Paris, he was he was very much faking it, uh, and it was only when uh, he and Dali began to work together, and he he realised that he had this capacity to make films that, that that actually got finished and and would be seen by people that that's when he began to see that he had a career but really well into his 20s Boonwell thought of himself as a complete failure which is interesting because one of the films that he he does when he's in Paris with with Dali is of course Chen and Lou and in that whole that whole spirit I mean it's it's a film that was made in the 20s we're still talking about it today people still look at it today um, what do you think moving out of the school and then into Paris and the art movements of the time had an effect on him and his ideas and his work? Uh, yes, the, the, the key thing was his encounter with surrealism. Um, surrealism was very much the, the fashionable um, style, creed, uh, I don't know what you'd call it really. It was, it was far more than an art movement. It was a kind of a, a lifestyle as well. Um, he, he, when you look back, you think, yes, of course, it was natural that he would come to surrealism. But, but, uh, if you look at it, uh, from his point of view, he, he, he really sort of splashed around in, 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 uh, Paris for a number of years, uh, writing reviews, looking for jobs, uh, sort of hanging around the edge of the film business being an extra and then being an assistant director really not even the first assistant but like the the fifth or sixth assistant uh, director for some of these experimental films and and you could see that the people who came from Spain uh, had got this impression that he was a big man in the cinema and as soon as they saw him running around as a gopher on films of people like Marcel Lerbia they, they were rather scornful. They thought, oh, this is the great Boonwell, and look at him, he's just a sort of uh, dog's body. But then surrealism ignited him, um, and that's something that, that happened when during the making of Shanandalu. Um, I, I think the process was that Dali understood surrealism first um, because he was more brilliant and more intuitive. Um and, and he kind of got a sense of it from from his early visits to Paris, talking to Picasso and to Juan Gris and people like that. And and he, when Boonwell thought, well, maybe I can scrape together enough money to make a, a short film, he approached Dali and Dali said, well, look, let's make a surrealist film. And Boonwell really didn't know what that was. Um, his his ideas for a film were fairly quotidian. Uh, he wanted to make a film sort of suggested by a daily newspaper, the headlines of a newspaper. It was a fairly, fairly boring idea. But Dali said, no, no, we, we do a surrealist film. Here are some ideas. And he sketched out some ideas, and these these triggered something in Boonwell. So the two of them got together down in Cadaquez and, and sat there and indulged in this um, surrealist um, 
sort of game, I suppose, of of, of free association, where they would, you know, sort of suggest fantasies or dreams, and and if the other agreed, then that would go into the film. And this was this was a process that Breton and Aragon and Supo had developed to free up the imagination. Uh, it, it appears in some of the early. Uh, uh, in the early surrealist texts like Champ Magnetique. Uh, and, uh, but Boonwell and Dali took it from the literature, took it from the writers and put it in, into, into, uh, operation with the visual artists. That was a crucial change. That really re- it was destined to revitalize surrealism. But at the time, it was it was sort of radical, you know. Breton hadn't agreed to it. Breton Breton thought of surrealism only to do with writers, uh, poetry particularly. Um, Boonwell and, and Dali independently came up with a synthesis of the visual and and the intellectual, um, and and presented it in, uh, in the form of Chien Andalou, which in that context you can see is a kind of thesis almost, a graduate thesis suggesting a synthesis that that, that, that was potentially there but which no one had yet uh, recognised. So it was just a magical moment. It could easily have passed and who knows what would have happened to to the careers of all concerned, but it just... It just struck that spark. When it first was, I don't want to say released, but screened, uh, Jean Andalou in, in Paris and in that, what was the reaction like at the time? Were you able to find that? Yes. Well, it, it was interesting. It was, it was shown privately first, of course. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the story goes that, that, uh, Dali and Boonwell went to see, they met Aragon in the La Coupole and they said, listen, we've made this film. We think it's a surrealist film. Uh, could you look at it and tell us what you think? And Aragon said, well, well I can do that. But, uh, the truth is that, that, that Andre Breton is the only one who can sort of give, give the the sort of stamp of approval in that sense he really was the like the pope of uh, of surrealism as he was called uh, and he'd been known to really you know people who announced that their work was surrealist he'd been known to wreck art galleries to stop um, theatrical productions to to go into bars and beat people up uh, if they dared transgress on his sort of patented idea of surrealism. So Aragon was not going to go out on a limb and uh, and uh, say uh, that it was surrealist. But he said, uh, we're having a screening of um, uh, Le Mystère de la Chateau de Day, the, uh, the film that Man Ray had made for for the Noailles as, as, a, as a gift for for Marie-Laure de Noailles. And, and we'll, we'll show your film as a sort of uh, a supporting program. So they did this for an invited audience, but very much opinion makers, but not Breton. Breton was not there, but there were enough people, including the Noai, to, to, to recognize that this film was truly remarkable. And uh, the the Noai immediately took it up. They were so wealthy, you know, and, and so influential that they invited Dali and uh, and Boonwell around to to their mansion on on the Square des Assunis and said, "Well, we'd like to, uh, you know, do something for your film. We'd like to screen it to people. We'd like to, uh, uh, you know, sort of show it around and, and so on. And maybe we'd like you to make a film for us for." 
for my wife's uh, birthday next year because it was a boy's birthday gift. And uh, by this time, Breton got to hear of the film and it had been uh, bought by a small cinema uh, for, for showing up in Montmartre and uh, the, he went to see it there you know, secretly, not telling anybody and saw that, first of all, it was essentially surrealist. It was in the surrealist uh, style, but also that it represented a, an important uh, uh, synthesis of the, of the visual and the intellectual, and it could, could be very good for the movement. So then he invited Boonwell and Dali around to attend one of the seances that, uh, that took place every evening at a cafe near his office. And they were sort of ritually uh, inducted into the movement that they had their photos taken in one of those um, photo booths, those photomaton booths, uh, along with all the other members. And uh, the little pictures were used as a frame for uh, a, a collage by, by Magritte, which appeared in the next issue of the Surrealist magazine. And that meant they were... They were in. Uh, they were officially surrealists. It's such a fascinating uh, first film to look at, and and the fact that there are so many like iconic images now that when you look at it, you're like, you know, the the eyeball thing, the, the ants coming out of the hand, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that they've become, you know, e even if you're not huge in terms of your uh, film film study. You've at least seen this one, and, and there's something, there's some power in those images in Ashenandalu still. Oh yes, very much so. Uh, well, of course, as you say, the the rays are cutting the eye. Uh, I mean, it, it it seems to us very broad as a metaphor, but but of course, it, like a lot of broad metaphors, it, it um, it's it's like the um, if you like, like the Odessa step sequence of of Potemkin. Yeah, you can see how obvious it is, but but you also say, yeah, but it's powerful as well. Um, and and uh, that's the that's the thing about Shenandoah that that it, it has it has the courage to to go out on a limb. There's uh, there's nothing uh, subtle about uh, about the film at all. The um, uh, the 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 characters um, are, br are drawn very broadly. They they overact uh, wildly. Uh, Pierre Batchev as the as the man drooling and waving his tennis racket, and the uh, and the girl appearing naked, and so on. They're, 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 no, he pulls no punches. They pull no punches. Um, I think because they felt well, we've got nothing to lose. Uh, this is, uh, you know, we've got a, we've only got enough money for one short film. We'd better make it count. So there's no subtlety uh, in it at all, and, and and that's that turned out to be, of course, its greatest strength. It's it's like kind of poster in some ways. It has that sort of, uh, you know, dash and flourish and and scale. It's it's bigger than life. A few years later, both. Uh Dali and and Bunuel work together to make a feature, and they do Lage d'Or, and and Lage d'Or is interesting, but it also has sort of a an odd history in France in terms of uh, not being able to be seen for a while because of some things that happened. Can you kind of go into that? Uh, yeah, the story of the Lage d'Or is it's it's a it's a large story. Um, the No I did commission a, a a movie for the following year and offered. Um, uh, Boonwell and Dali a million francs, which even then was a was a quite a substantial amount, um, and so the two of them began to work uh, on on a film. Um, 
but they didn't find it quite as 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 comfortable as they had making the short film. Maybe because uh, just more material was needed. There would there needed to be some kind of continuity, some story over and above the the succession of images. And Boonwell turned out to be quite good at that because after all he'd he'd had a lot of experience working on features already as an assistant, so he knew what was called for, he, and he knew the technicians and so on. And he tried to explain to Dali that, uh, you know, he'd have to be a bit more disciplined, but that, was, that wasn't wasn't Dali's uh, style at all. So, so Dali, in fact, came up with some of the more vivid uh, images, the, the scene uh, in the garden where uh, Gaston Modot sort of appears to eat the, the hand of Lealise and uh, uh, things like that, you know, th- those, those are definitely Dali. We have documentary evidence that he came up with those. But, but many other images, um, particularly the anti-clerical images, uh, the, um, the bones of the bishops on the, on the rocks at Catechez, the, 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 cart full of uh, men going through the dinner party and so on. A lot of that was very Boonwell, very much Boonwell's contribution, uh, because that was the sort of thing he'd been doing uh, on the other films he'd he'd worked on, on the features. And so he and Dali really began to fall out over Large Door. Uh, however, um, the, the confrontation was delayed because out of the blue, um, uh, Boonwell was invited to go to Hollywood. Um, the circumstances are a bit vague. Uh, I think what happened was that um, MGM wanted uh, Leah Lease. Uh, because she was quite glamorous and uh, she, it was possible she could be a, a sort of another star along the lines of Marlena Dietrich and Anna Sten and Garbo. So they would give contracts to these people just for a, a few months to see if they worked out. And, and very often these, these people, these women came with a sort of boyfriend or, or, you know, some sort of helper or mentor, uh, with them, like Joseph von Sternberg with, uh, with, uh, Dietrich and, uh, uh, like, um, what's his name with, uh, Garbo, um, I can't remember. Anyway, it's people like this, you know, and so they, they, they offered a, a contract to Boonwell also, not really knowing what he was going to do uh, in Hollywood, but sort of assuming maybe he could work on dubbing or something or other. But so, so Boonwell left uh, France to go to the United States. And uh, while he was away, uh, the large door was shown, was bought and shown in a, in a cinema in, in Montmartre. And for various reasons, really not that much connected with the film as, as with the, the circumstances of the time. The film became the center of a scandal. Um, it, a, a group of right wing, really fascists, um, attacked the cinema and wrecked it. Um, on the mistaken impression that the large door was was a Jewish film or or had some kind of religious significance, basically what they were what they were complaining about, what they were protesting about, had more to do with with some things that Sergei Eisenstein had been doing uh, in Paris that had attracted a lot of bad press. 
and and a large door that they they simply they'd have not seen it obviously so they they thought oh this is a foreign movie it's another weird movie let's attack that uh, and so they wrecked the cinema and uh, this drew a lot of unpleasant um, uh, publicity to the film and to Charles de Noailles who had put up the money for it. Uh, so in the absence of Boonwell in America and Dali in Spain, the Noai got all the flack. And uh, Charles de Noailles was a very conservative man. He was nothing like his wife. His wife was quite wild and, and uh, avant-garde. But Charles was a, a very calm, old-fashioned aristocrat interested mostly in gardening. And this all this scandal just was uh, more than he could stand, particularly when uh, the Jockey Club, which was the most select club in Paris, complained and said that that uh, you'll, uh, we can't have this film associated with the Jockey Club. You must resign. And, and if you don't resign, then we will all have to leave the club. We'll have to wind up the club. Um, and so uh, Charles uh, resigned and decided that he would suppress the film. He didn't want it shown. Uh, he, he didn't want it uh, circulated. It's not true that he suggested it be destroyed. They say that, um, that there are suggestions. I think Paul Elwar said uh, they're, they're, they're thinking of destroying it. Of course, we, we won't let that happen. But Charles never said that. He just wanted it buried. He didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and, and so that's what happened. In fact, the, the, the negative and, and, the, um, and the existing prints were squirreled away in a Spanish bookshop um, uh, up on Rue Sefren and, and sat there for a few years. Uh, so the film was out of circulation. Uh, when Boonwell came back from um, America, the, the scandal had died down pretty well. Um, and, and so he went on to other things and, and Dali also. But, but um, it, had, it, it had kind of broken the relationship between Dali and, uh, and Boonwell because Dali... He wanted it both ways. He wanted he wanted to take credit for the film, but he didn't want to take credit for the for what what was seen as its anti-religious uh, uh, element. So he said that he was fooled by Boonwell into putting this anti-religious element in, and and so on. But 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 he still stood by the film uh, as um, as his own work, and this is what kind of really destroyed the relationship between Boonwell and Dali. His time in America, um, MGM, he didn't spend too much time there, but um, there was a time when he was hired into, I guess it was the film department at Museum of Modern Art, is that correct? And then there was um, there was some scandal involving him? Oh, yes, that was very interesting. There was this woman named Iris Barry. Uh, she set up the film department of the Museum of Modern Art, uh, and, and um, she was... Uh, yeah, she was a wild lady, you know. She got she was she was drunk a lot of the time. She had all these terrible love affairs, and and she was obviously very good at seducing men into giving her money, even if there was no actual sex involved. She was very good at coaxing money out of uh, out of uh, people. So she she got some out of um, uh, uh, what's uh, Nelson Rockefeller. 
Nelson Rockefeller was placed in charge of this program. This is during the Second World War now. I uh, was placed in, in, in charge of this program uh, called the Good Neighbor Program, which was a sort of uh, uh, attempt to seduce the countries of, of Central and South America uh, into uh, coming in on the American side. So uh, it, it was propaganda, essentially, but also a certain amount of discreet financial help. And uh, she convinced... Um, him that uh, what they should do is uh, is take films from South America and redo them and then re-export them into the um, uh, into South America as propaganda and also to pick up propaganda films from Germany and reuse them and so on to be a sort of uh, uh, kind of out, propaganda outlet for the United States government. And Boonwell at this point uh, run out of options in, um, uh, in France and uh, he, uh, he decided that uh, he went to Spain and made some films. I mean, it's a very complicated period. He was involved in the Spanish Civil War and so on, but, but that's so complex. Um, so he ended up in, um, in uh, the United States, in New York, uh, during the war along with Andre Breton and a number of other surrealists uh, who'd fled there uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, people like that, um, and it created a sort of little little card of, uh, of, uh, of surrealism there. So he became part of that, and he got a job with Iris Barry. Uh, essentially, uh, he was supposed to be dubbing uh, and editing um, these uh, propaganda films. The thing was, though, he had had no real background in editing. He, he, he was completely ignorant. So what, what he basically did was uh, uh, write, write commentaries and, uh, and look at films and, and set up programs uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, some of which included screenings of Shannon Deleuze, and there were others um, uh, that he screened Nazi documentaries and so on. And um, he got caught again in a, in a political conflict because um, once the war began, once America got into the war, and start, uh, Hollywood could see that there was there was big money in making propaganda films, they decided uh, to shut down all the amateurs, as it were, and uh, the Museum of Modern Art were essentially amateurs, and so the studios ganged up on on um, Iris Barry and MoMA. And Boonwell and um, Jay Lader, who was a communist uh, film critic and documentary maker, they became uh, the two targets because their, their, their careers were could be made to seem, you know, shady or somehow uh, subversive. Um, and so um, Boonwell was attacked for having made this godless, uh, anti-religious, probably communist uh, uh, film, Large Door, uh, and, and later for having done his Soviet documentaries. And so Boonwell, in the end, was forced to resign, uh, which, which placed him in an awkward situation because by then he was married and he, the, he and Jan, his wife, had uh, Juan Luis, their, their son, um, and he had no money. So he went to Dali, who was by then the darling of, uh, of the upper crust, doing portraits of, of millionaires and throwing parties and everything, and asked him for some money. 
And, and Darley gave him a lecture about uh, neither a borrow nor a lender be, which went down very badly. And so um, Boonwell took a job in Hollywood uh, dubbing uh, American movies into Spanish and, uh, and, and spent quite a long time actually working at that. Not too long after that, um, and you'd referenced it a little bit, and he, he goes to Mexico and he starts making some films there, and, and, and this is in like the 1950s. And there are some that are rather well-known or, um, or not as surrealist or strange as, as his earlier work or his later work, like Los Olvidados gets, gets a lot of attention and, and becomes an important film. And then he was also making like rather straightforward movies as well and then makes, to my mind, which sort of seems like a, a forerunner of his later period in, in Spain and France, um, the exterminating angels. So it, it seems like Mexico is a, a rather odd time or a time of experimentation in some constraints, maybe. Yes, his, his period in Mexico turned out to be to be one of the most interesting. Uh, one had to go there and actually talk to the people to get a sense of of, uh, of what it was like. It, it was very much frontier filmmaking down there. Uh, he went down because he, he he met a man called Oscar Danziga. Uh, Danziger, as it turns out, was a was a sort of a communist agent. If uh, it, it emerged, but but uh, he'd set himself up in Mexico as a production manager, and he'd worked for uh, a number of um, of Hollywood um, uh, uh, studios that had done uh, films in um, in Mexico, in particular uh, uh, the John Steinbeck um, adaptation, The Pearl. He'd been involved in that, and he was involved also in The Power and the Glory, the adaptation of the Graham Greene uh, uh, story with Henry Fonda. And and he'd supplied uh, technicians, he'd supplied resources and so on. And, and, and it was very highly respected. So he decided to go into production on his own. And uh, Boonwell had gone down there uh, in pursuit of another project and he'd met Danziger again. And, and Danziger said, I might have something for you. Uh, so yes, as you said, he began to um, involve him uh, in his cheap, these cheap uh, program movies. Really, not even B movies. I mean, Z movies. Really, um, comedies and, and and sort of melodramas, um, w- w- which were really very trivial. Uh, but Boonwell, I mean, he, he knew how to make a film, and he could make it cheap. He could make a film cheaper than almost anybody. He, he never did reshoot. He knew exactly what what he wanted in any in any given scene. He didn't uh, sort of do extra stuff. He didn't overshoot. He 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 just he was extremely efficient. So Danziger's Danziger was very happy with him. Uh, but then he made, as you said, he made Los Olvidados, and Los Olvidados was not a program picture. It was very much a surrealist uh, picture uh, about uh, street kids in. Um, uh, in Mexico City, and it was extremely violent, filled with disturbing Im- images, uh, some of them of dreams, and uh, it, it it caused a scandal. Um, people in, in Mexico, you know, were all ready to kind of uh, toss him out of the country. 
Um, but but Boonwell, he was he was quite good at rolling with the punches, and and of course Los Olvidados did get a great deal of, of acclaim outside uh, Mexico, and people like Breton endorsed it. Uh, so he he got through that storm, and as you say, uh, this this uh, began to attract other. Uh, producers. He broke with Danzigers, but he began to work with with other producers who have a little more money. And yes, he made a, a series of very curious uh, films: uh, *Lange Exterminador*, um, *El Crimen*, things like that, which are much more like, for want of the better word, the mature um, uh, the, the mature uh, Boone well. What they show above all is that the surrealism that was present in, in Chien Andalou had, had flourished and, and now he was able to let it out, uh, uh, f- at full length, which is what, what, that's what makes these films, I think, so, so striking. He eventually ends up going back to Spain in 19, or I think around 1960. And what's interesting to me is that he fought against the fascists. He fought against Franco and, and all of that. And then ends up being welcomed back by Franco to make Verdiana. And then that once again leads to another scandal. <laughs> Well, exactly, because you see, he was a subversive. Uh, this was his great skill. He's great. He never made statements of, uh, of, uh, belief. He never, he never sort of nailed his colors to the mast. He just quietly got on with making the films he wanted to make. Uh, and, and if they caused a scandal, then he just kind of hunkered down in a bath somewhere with his favorite Boonwelloni and, and waited till the storm abated. So when he was invited to come back to, to Spain. Uh, yes, uh, people thought, that, or certainly all of his his fellow emigres in Mexico thought that that he'd given in to the Franco regime, uh, and and there was there was enormous amount of, uh, of uh, bad blood between him and the other um, Mexico, the other uh, exiles. But but all along, he he meant the film Viridiana to be a um, a subversive film. He was he was smuggling a bomb in, into the middle of Spain, uh, and so he he made this film. Um, he he managed to uh, get it accepted into uh, various film festivals without it having been seen by the authorities. So it was never censored. Uh, and then at the last minute, when it looked like the, the, the administration was going to crack down on it and destroy it, he smuggled out the, um, the, the, the negative and prints again, which just like he'd done with large door, he, he smuggled them out. He, they were smuggled out in a, in a combi van by Juan Luis, uh, in a combi van run by a team of, uh, midget matadors <laughs> of all things. <laughs> so, which I, I, I think it's a wonderful moment. Uh, somebody ought to make a film about the smuggling out of Viridiana. But but again, you see, he'd uh, he'd done what he he's, he was so good at. He'd he'd subverted the the status quo, and uh, that's that's always you see it in all of his mature films. This ability to undermine, to 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 mock, to criticize, to be, to be in fact very much a surrealist. What I find interesting, I think it was. Verdiana was that um, the film was shown and some critics and I think it may have been the Catholic Church Film Office or something said, this is a great film, you should see this. And then they looked at it again and said, 
no, this is a sacrilegious yeah. film. How dare we? Like, we got it totally wrong. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, very often these these films they were seen just by a single person representing the church or representing the government. And if that person was first of all a, a, a little sort of on side with Boonwell, uh, it happened with Fellini as well. As a matter of fact, you know, so sometimes these people find a kind of tame priest or a tame censor and and, and use them to um, to get through. Hitchcock did it as well with. Some the directors get very good at this, of finding somebody who will put the rubber stamp on on the film so they can get it shown. And, and then the next thing is the, 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 the church at large or the, the government at large see the film and, and realise, as you say, that, that it is not what, not what it appears to be. And certainly Viridiana on the surface can be read as the, as the story of a sort of holy fool and so on. You know, it could be seen in a saintly light if you want to. Uh, but, of course, as soon as you look at it with any sense of, of metaphor and, and, uh, and of imagery, you begin to see just just what what he's um, uh, what he's inserted into this tale. A few years later, he ends up in France, and, and this would be the, the the final period of really what you were calling his mature films. Basically, um, you know, Diary of a Chambermaid, forward to that ob- obscure object of desire, and um, the, this episode we're really focusing on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, and was hoping that. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that and, and various things that you learned in your research about the making of that film and the reaction with that film. Mm. Uh, yes, he he came back to to France um, because, in part, because he was friendly with a producer named Serge Silberman, um, who who was one of those sort of marginal. Uh, producers who'd got along uh, doing little films and living hand to mouth, and he, he and he and Silverman got on very well. They liked to drink together and so on. Uh, and and uh, he made he made films. He also uh, made made films with uh, a rather more uh, loose um, uh, pair of brothers called the Hakims, um, with whom he he made um, Belle de Jour. Uh, he also became friendly with Jean Claude Carrière. Uh, who was very much a, a kindred spirit, um, and and the two of them drank together, talked together, and wrote together. Um, Carrier, of course, being much younger than Boonwell, and and so he had a little equipe, as, as it were, a little team that he got together in France, and he always liked that. He liked to work with with people who understood his methods uh that he didn't have to explain things uh, to because he hated explaining uh he 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 liked to be able to to say to people just just do it just read the line and don't you know i can't just don't act he'd say he said this to Catherine Deneuve don't don't perform just you know do the lines and so so uh, having these people kind of around him made him much more comfortable uh, and and yes, yeah, some of his some of his best films there are those late films um, that that he made um, uh, with Silverman, with even with the I think Belle de Jure is one of his masterpieces, even though it was made with a with a very dodgy uh, pair, and there were all sorts of financial problems. Still, you know, it's a great film. But yeah, Charme Discret. Um, this this was something that he cooked up with with Carrière. Um, 
the, the, the origins of it are very odd. Uh, to me, the origin is, as, as I said at the beginning, that he was a member of the bourgeoisie. Uh, he was a senorito. He came from a from a very polite family. He himself was extremely polite and very much concerned with um, with uh, the, doing the right thing. For instance, he everywhere he went, he carried a, a bow tie with him in case he should ever need to um, to go into some sort of formal situation. Um, and and he he was ex- he had extremely good manners. He was he was very very amiable. Um, n- not what you would associate with him as a as a filmmaker. He liked to live quietly. He lived in a in a room in a hotel overlooking um, the Mont- the Montmartre Cemetery. Um, next door, as it happens, to Jean Paul Sartre's mother. She had the apartment next door, uh, and. Um, he lived a quiet life, and, and, and so he understood about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, uh, and, and it amused him to contrast the, their politeness, good manners, uh, concern with the way things looked, with with the, the sort of the seething uh, mass of dreams and fantasies that, that exist, you know, just below the surface. Uh, this, in fact, would become his subject for the the rest of his his life because you can see it in in Belle de Jour, you can see it in Phantom of the Liberty, you, know, you can see it in in uh, Milky Way. Um, it's it's what's going on under the surface of of the apparently tranquil life. So, Charme uh, Discret uh, was was his way of uh, epiter le bourgeois, if you like, to 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 disturb the bourgeoisie by pointing out that. That under under this tranquil surface there was there were dark and deep and and, and dark and deep waters with with beasts um, swimming in them. What's interesting to me with uh, Discreet Charm is it almost seems like not a deliberate sequel but a connection with uh, Exterminating Angel. In that within the Exterminating Angel you have all these people that come together for a dinner party and then they can't leave and then sort of society breaks down and the good manners break down. With the discreet charm, you have these couples that get together to eat, but they're always thwarted, and it sort of breaks down a little bit too. Yes, oh no, you're, you're right, but you can see it also in some of the the Mexican films, La Grand Calvaire. It's about a, a, a bourgeois family that that, that is sort of uh, destroyed by the the oddities of the the, the paterfamilias and so on, and and it turns it turns up as a theme in a number of films. In fact, it's in Large Door. You know, they're having a perfectly normal dinner party, and then a cart full of peasants sort of goes through, and then the, in the bedroom there's there's a cow. In the bed and Max Ant sitting on the floor. Uh, you know, so there's a um, uh, there's a this theme of the of the quotidian disturbed by the by the fantastic uh, is something he likes. But um, in 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 Charm Discret, of course, uh, he he structures it cleverly by 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 choosing actors who kind of embody. The, the sort of decent, upright, middle-class values. There's nothing re- revolutionary about uh, Stefan Erdran or Boulogier or, uh, or, or, or Alejandro Rey, but, or, uh, sorry, Fernando Rey, but, but, uh, but there they are behaving bizarrely all the time. That whole period in, in France when he was, when he was making these, these later films, um, I've often said to people, 
you know, we, we often have this idea, and maybe it's an American idea, that art is the place for the young, that, you know, creativity is the place for the young. This may have something to do with rock and roll music. But Bunuel was already sort of losing some of his, he was losing his hearing. He was in his, I mean, he goes back to, to France. He's in his 60s. Mm-hmm. And it, it to me, it just kind of shows that an, an artist, it doesn't matter the age. As a matter of fact, maybe you even get better as you get towards uh, your, your final years. Well, uh, you can argue both ways. I mean, I think, for instance, Francis Ford Coppola has got worse and worse. Uh, but but uh, you're quite right. I think Kubrick, I don't. I don't know that you could say Kubrick really improved, but but certainly there was a there was a a period where he seemed to 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 strike a you know perfection and then fall off. Uh, you're quite right, of course. Boonwell was not only getting on in age, but he was also in physically very bad shape. Uh, he, he'd had sciatica all his life; it went back to uh, to the war years, and and uh, so he, he couldn't really stand up very very easily. Uh, on the set, and, and in fact, uh, Silberman uh, introduced uh, for for um, Charme Discret a, a technical thing which was then almost unknown in France, which was the video split. So was able to direct from a chair in another room and just uh, you know tell people to just move around, uh, move a little to the left, a little to the right, which is probably w- what he'd always wanted to do. Uh, but now at last he had the the technique to. Um, to do it, but but yes, I I think he also he also knew that um, he had nothing to lose. You know, he'd already he'd already done his he'd done his worst, really. You know, he'd not, nothing he did was was really going to make the the, the sky fall. Uh, that he'd got almost a kind of license to uh, to be a sort of uh, you know um, a goad and and and. Um, uh, a sort of subversive, and so he he, he could go to uh, actresses like Stéphane Adran and Jean Pierre Cassel, who had quite respectable um, uh, uh, characters, you know, established characters in the cinema, and they would work for him, even not knowing what the what the role was. It's a bit like Woody Allen became, you know, people would work on a Woody Allen movie no matter what; they were just flattered to be asked. Uh, and, and that was certainly true of the uh, of the actors in this that that, that they that they were delighted that uh, somebody like um, Boonwell was was interested in working with them and they would do just what they were told and and that's that's very evident I think in 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 Charme District. I thought it was funny with the um, with the film he also that won a foreign film Oscar and there's this rather well known photo of him posing with the Oscar. <laughs> mm-hmm. In his dark glasses. Yes, he didn't even turn up to his own press screening. And uh, he was quite surprised uh, that he was uh, nominated and uh, that, he, that he won. This was Silberman, really, who was pulling the strings. Silberman had arranged for the film to be, uh, to be opened a little uh, before Christmas so that it would qualify. And, and uh, there were political reasons why Hollywood wanted to honour a foreign film rather than some of the new films that were, were coming up from young directors. Um, but of course, uh, prizes and things like that were of no significance to him. When um, I, I was working on the book, I, I went to spend some time with Juan Luis when he was living in 
eldest son when he was living in Paris. And I said, what about uh, your father's um, honours? You know, his Oscar and everything. And he said, oh, I don't know where that is. He said, hold on. And he went in and he had pulled a huge suitcase out from under the bed uh, and opened it up. And it was it was filled with all sorts of memorabilia, including all these honours that he'd won at, at Cannes and Venice and so on. You know, they meant nothing to him at all. Uh, it's, it, that's amazing because, you know, obviously it, it, it's a... Um, I, I guess a take between someone from, you know, that school and, and sort of the American view of uh, words are great things. Mm. Yeah, well, he, he just didn't care about any of that. He didn't care uh, about where he lived. I mean, his house in, in Mexico City is is tiny, you know, really. it's uh, you, he, I'm sure, I mean, he probably died quite wealthy, uh, but but uh, he lived very frugally. Uh, he ate very little. He drank, but he liked to drink, you know, and uh, that doesn't cost that much. Uh, he was always in work. He was never out of work, really. So... Um, he um, he he's one of those people for whom um, the 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 trappings of the film industry meant nothing. Um, he, you know, he, even when he made films, he made films kind of against against cinema in a way. He he made films that had ideas in them, but but how they were made, how they looked, how they were cast, it, it didn't really matter to him at all. Uh, they they should be in focus and so on. But there's nothing beautiful about Boonwell's films, really, or at least nothing self-consciously beautiful. Maybe a few shots uh, in, in Belle de Jour and, and the, uh, the few shots in, um, in uh, Chant Discret and so on, but, but there, there's, no, there's no pictorialism in Boonwell. Uh, he was very much um, like the surrealist, you know, like Magritte and, and, and Delvaux, people like that, that the... The art embodied an idea, and the idea was paramount. When we look out today, and he's been he's been gone now about thirty years. He died in the early nineteen eighties. Where do we see the impact of of his films on other filmmakers? Ah, uh, that's difficult. Um, he's, he's not an easy man to to imitate, is he? Uh, because his um, uh, the, the central idea of surrealism was something that was very personal to him. And if you look at, at, the, at his style, there, there, it's, there's not really much of a style. There's not much of a, of a visual style about his work. Um, the, and, and, and there are the, 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 the actual the stories, for want of a better word, are so various and trivial. You know, no one's going to remake Belle de Jour or even take the Belle de Jour idea and use it for themselves. No one's going to make Charme Discret. You know, you can't imagine a, a Hollywood remake of Charme Discret. You can't even imagine a French remake of it because um, everybody is going to say, well, this is nothing, you know, this is nowhere near as good as the original. Um, and, and, and I can't think of too many directors who... Uh, really want to deal in the intricacies of surrealism. It's not an easy, it's not an easy creed or whatever you want to call it to 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 exploit. For instance, there are there are some painters that are sort of semi surrealist, but but the, it's not the prevailing style at all. Um, I think it'd take a very brave filmmaker to uh, to try and um, and use uh, some of Boonwell's ideas in their own films. It would just I mean, it would be the 
the false, the original, and the and the copy would be would clash so much. I'm sure. I mean, for me, as a as a big film fan and a and a fan of Bunuel, I mean, I kind of see him maybe in two directors, but not in huge doses. And one would be um, David Lynch, and then the other would be Alejandro Jodorowsky. And I sort of see, um, with, with Jodorowsky, I see sort of this um, questions of religion and, and surrealist imagery and, you know, midgets, as we were talking about, and things like that, and dreams. And then also with David Lynch, you know, sort of, of dream logic and, and things like that as well. Yeah, but remember, in, is it, I think it's in Swimming with Sharks, where they, they have a midget in a dream sequence. Is this the, Steve Buscemi is directing this movie? Is that Swimming with Sharks? Uh, living in Oblivion. Uh, and, and, uh, the midget saying, "Listen, what what am I doing in this? Do you have dreams about midgets? I don't have dreams about midgets, uh, you know. Um, but um, I, I don't know. I, I I think it can look it, it it could be like that. It can look like a a sort of um, uh, an homage, the or or a kind of copying of a detail." Um, that really doesn't get to the core of the work. Hodorowsky, yes, of course, I mean, certainly because of the Mexican connection and so on, it's a lot clearer there, uh, I would think. But again, I think it's a sort of more like a a sort of homage rather than being a a genuine attempt to to build on anything that that Boonwell did. I I suppose I see maybe in a film like... um, What's it called? In Bruges, is it called? Or At Bruges? Yeah. This English Bruges. film came out a few years ago um, about the two uh, killers in Bruges. Um, with the, there's this midget um, in that. That that has a, a quality of, of uh, surrealism. David Lynch, yeah, well, uh, it's, of course, he's the name that comes to mind. Um, maybe, maybe... Yes, yes. I suppose if there's anybody close, it could be it could be Lynch. But I don't know. I mean, um, it's not. Well, I, th- I think I think yes. All right, I, I accept that there could be a, a connection, but I think it, it's fairly attenuated. If you go back into Lynch's work, you know, it, it comes out of uh, comic strips and and uh, um, performance art and and uh, and and uh, collage and um, uh, that sort of thing, which is it's high art. But Boonwell was low art. Boonwell was um, was more political and religious, and that's something people just don't do very well anymore. I'm afraid. As for you, what's uh, some of the latest that you're working on? Books and places where people can find out what you're working on. Oh, well, it's on my website, uh, of course, um, um, uh, easy to find, and, and my web, web address is on all my books. I don't, I don't really write about the cinema much anymore. I do, I do a bit. Uh, my wife is a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, and we just uh, made a film about the making of The Blue Angel for which we shot in Babelsberg Studios, actually on the on the soundstage where where both the Blue Angel and Metropolis were shot. That was an extraordinary experience. Um, uh, we went out on the back lot and uh, and and shot some stuff on the sets of uh, the pianist and so on. It, uh, it's always, it always astonishes me when um, old facilities are still uh, in existence. Um, and right now. Um, my wife is doing uh, two films in Rome, one about Chinichita, which is 
um, kind of crumbling somewhat, I'm afraid, maybe closing down. And the other about the uh, rivalry between Visconti and Fellini, uh, both of which I have something to do with. So I, I keep in my hand with uh, uh, with documentary and so on, but but uh, less with um, less with actually writing about um, film. I'm afraid that the Really, f- writing about film is is um, increasingly difficult. The amount of money that you can hope to earn from a biography is out of all proportion to the amount of time and effort that go into it. And um, in the end, all a writer has to sell is time. And I like to use my time in the most uh, uh, economical way possible. Yeah, that's sad, you know, because I, I know that there's probably great stories to be told and books to be written, but the economics of it it makes it hard yeah well, for instance, there was a there was a, one of these kindle singles was done the other day about john milius is called the real lebowski and and i mean really it's the most trivial it's there's a in the middle of it is a quite good interview with milius who's a who's a great subject and i think extraordinary filmmaker and especially screenwriter really deserves to have a, a book written about him completely but who would publish a, a serious book about milius or kasdan or schrader or any of these great writers of that period, you know, they're, they're going to be dead and no one's going to have asked them the serious questions, uh, which is a great pity. Thanks to John Baxter for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work over at our website, projection-booth.com. So as you heard John Baxter, you know, Bunuel's career and his background was quite varied. So, you know, he's, he was born in Spain and he went to school with Dolly and Lorca and had an amazing career in Paris in the 20s with the Surrealists and then moved to the States for a while and ended up in Mexico, came back to Europe and lived out uh, the rest there working, as I said, basically from 1960 until about 1978 doing his final films before he passed away. So this one is sort of in the middle. This one comes, well, middle end. This one comes out in 1972, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And I thought we would get into it now because I wanted to give you a little background into who who Bunuel was, what his ideas were, in case you didn't know. And what the film opens up with, and this becomes sort of a visual motif, is the idea of the road. So the first thing we see over the credits is obviously something being shot out the front window of a car as it drives and we don't exactly know where we're going. We eventually end up at this manor house, and that's where we meet our four characters, uh, the get-out-of-the-car and um, the wife of Henri. It's um, Alice and Henri are the ones who have the house, and then there's Don Raphael, who's the ambassador of the Republic of Miranda in Paris, and his friend, Mr. Thino, and his wife, and Thino's uh, wife's younger sister. And we get kind of the feeling that uh, Don Raphael and the younger sister, I don't, we don't know what their relationship is. It's obviously two married couples and then these two people who are kind of along with them. The one thing that's really funny is they, they show up at the manor house and Alice, the wife, is like, oh, you guys are a day early. We were supposed to meet for dinner tomorrow. And it's like, oh, well, I know that it couldn't be tomorrow because I wouldn't have been able to do it. My schedule's blocked. It's like, oh, okay, so let's 
let's all go out to dinner. So let's just do that. So they, they get in the car and they, they drive off and they go to this little place nearby that has been recommended. And this is where the, you know, basically we've already had one turn down in one way when it comes to trying to get something to eat, but it gets a little crazier from here. They try to get in, they're stopped at the door, uh, by this woman who we kind of assume at first is being very rude about things. And they finally kind of talk their way into this place only to find out that they're having a, like a wake going on in the restaurant. Yeah. Not only did the old owner um, leave and there's now a new owner, which is kind of, of course, that's going to be sketchy to someone who recommends that they're going to take their friends out to dinner. It's like, well, you know, new owners, I don't know. Well, we'll go try it anyway. And they find that the current owner had passed away and they've laid him out in the back. So all the staff is trying to wait on what they want for dinner, but at the same time be in the back and, um, you know, pay the respects to the currently, or I would say brand new dead guy. And this, of course, incenses the uh, the five of them because Alice's husband is not with them. And they're like, well, I guess we should leave. So they get thwarted from having dinner uh, that night. And the next scene we, we get into, or maybe the a, a few in, is we really start to learn about who these people really are. And there's a little joke in here that the Buñuel has to a very popular film that just came out the year before uh, in relation to the character of Don Rafael, who is played by Fernando Rey, is that he's a drug dealer. So did you understand what the joke was there? Yeah, I got that one. He's uh, you know doing the same thing that he was doing when he was in the French Connection. Yeah, so it's kind of funny that there's this. Uh, he sets that up as a little nod back to, of course, the film the, the year before that got so much attention for Friedkin and and I would say for Fernando Rey because Fernando Rey had worked with with Buñuel. He had been in uh, Verdiana and in other works, and he would be in the films going forward from Discreet Charm uh, to the end, and. To me, he had always sort of been this um, – he, he's a Spanish character, a Spanish actor. And we talked about him actually in uh, Executive Action because he's in The Price of Power, the spaghetti western. And I joked about how it was funny to hear a Texas accent coming out of Fernando Rey's mouth. But um, he – to me, he kind of represents in things like um, Tristiana and Verdiana sort of this uh, Spanish nobility. And I think a lot of ways uh, Bunuel kind of used him as a foil for the kind of nobles and old world that he grew up in uh, Spain when he was when he was a kid. He would, Bunuel had been born in 1900, so there was still that level of aristocracy that was around before um, the Franco Revolution and all of that stuff happened, which uh, we talked a little bit about on uh, the Who Can Kill a Child episode. Yeah, and it's funny that you say, you know, Fernando Rey with the French connection, because I don't know if you remember this, but Fernando Rey being casted in the French connection was actually kind of a mistake. Um, it was Friedkin had seen a Bunuel film and said, I want the guy from this film and to his casting agent and his agent misunderstood which person he wanted and ended up getting Fernando Ray. I can't remember who the original person was, but it wasn't Ray, but then he ended up, you know, working perfectly. Yeah, that's the other thing. It was a French actor that he wanted and then Ray ends up being Spanish and they keep calling him like the frog or something, which doesn't necessarily make sense. <laughs> but I think that Fernando Ray, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm willing to bet that he knew both Spanish and French as as Oh yeah. Yeah. And this goes into a thing that Bunuel talked about in his book, My Last Sigh, 
in that I, I think this is almost a corollary to America in some way, where he talks about how the Spanish know everything about France, but the French know nothing of Spain. And I think that this could be a corollary about America and Canada or America and Mexico, where – Or America and any place else in the rest <laughs> of the world. It just sort of seems uh, when it comes to culture and, and understanding other cultures that the average level person would know more about that place. And I think a lot of that has to do with economics because Spain – you know, had its great period of wealth and expansion and empire and all that stuff hundreds of years before and was the big superpower of the world and then sort of collapsed under its own weight and then became this sort of backwater for a long time. And that was definitely the case when, when Buñuel was a kid and was growing up. It was, you know, it was just this poor country, you know, at least where he was growing up. And um, he his family was one of sort of the aristocratic in a way. Um, it's kind of funny when uh, I was just watching The Leopard about um, the Burt Lancaster film, the Visconti, and sort of I think there might be a small parallel between those two because Visconti had grown up much more um, the, the the son of a noble, the son of a uh, an, an aristocrat. I don't think Bunuel was quite there, but his father was definitely you know someone of wealth in this uh, area where he grew up, which was not as uh, affluent as other parts of the country. So the characters are interesting because you have uh, you have the one couple, you have Mr. Thinot, and you have Alison Henri, and then you have the sister and Don Raphael, the ambassador. And they keep trying uh, – as we say, you know, the, the whole film is just about them trying to meet for dinner and all these different things that just keep popping up or how they use these get-togethers in a way as sort of a weapon – against each other uh, slightly, or especially people who are lower than them, meaning those who are working class or poor. And one example of this is when they meet at Alice and Henri's house, and they're waiting for them to show up. Now, they don't know this, uh, the the four don't know this, that Alice and Henri are like upstairs, and they're kind of fooling around, and they decide, okay, well, you know, you make too much noise, so we're going to go outside and have sex, and then it'll be okay. So, so as they kind of scamper off into the woods to to do what they need to do, they're downstairs, and Mister Thinel is discussing the proper way to make a dry martini because they've been offered by the maid there. Um, just yes, just you know, make yourself comfortable, have a drink, and they'll be down in a few. So, uh, Thinel actually is discussing Bunuel's personal recipe for how to make dry martini. And there's a video of this, and I'll include this on the website, projection-booth.com, because you're going to want this for your uh, New Year's celebrations coming up, or just any day of the week, you know, when you feel like a martini. And what I find that's funny about the martini is it's not just a drink. It's a weapon of class warfare. And what he does is he goes, hey, I got an idea. Let's call in the driver. Because, of course, they don't drive themselves. They have the driver who... Brought him out to the manor house. And um, he goes, you know, if you're going to have a dry martini like this, there's a certain way to prepare it. And there's a certain way to enjoy it. You know, you should sip it like fine champagne and all this. So they call him in and they're like, here, we have a drink for you. And they don't tell him what to do. They just give him the drink. He's like, oh, thank you. And he just, you know, slugs it back, gives him the glass back, walks back outside. Thank you. You know, and it's like, see? You see how low class he is? He didn't even know how to drink that. Exactly. Yeah, that was good. It, the It's funny because there are so many times where class comes into this. I mean, it, 
because just in a few scenes later, you know, our our two couples leave and go off, and then the uh, is it the bishop? Yeah, the bishop. Yeah, bishop shows up and is talking to the maid and is talking about their gardener and all this. And gardeners really kind of come into the film quite a bit, especially through this bishop character. And he wants to be their gardener to like you know do his work kind of stuff. And he saw that their their garden was untended. And he goes out and he switches into the gardener garb. And by that time, the couple has come back after having their little, you know, romp out in the woods. And he comes in and he's all dressed like a gardener. And they just hurt berating him and how dare you come in here and da 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 And then he goes out. He changes back into his bishop guy. guys, comes back in and they're like, oh, hey, so sorry. You know, and it's just like. You know the the garb is what they are paying attention and and giving respect to. It's not the person that's wearing it. Yeah, and it's just you know it's all about symbols. It's all about what symbols get respect within this world that's been constructed. And it's just funny to see how they shove him out the door like, oh, you're a crazy old man, get out of here. And then and then he goes and changes and he comes back. And he's in the garb, and and he puts his hand out, and of course they kiss his ring and all this. And it's like, oh, you know, yeah. He's like, it's fine, you know. I wasn't dressed properly, so right. <laughs> Not only does he become their gardener, but he also becomes kind of the part of the group for a while. He's traveling with them and and doing some of the dining with them as well. Yeah. the The one thing, uh, the reason why I don't include him in is because to me, the um, the scene that pops up several times and is right around this part and then at the very end of the film is them walking down the road. And right. it's, it's the six of them walking down the road. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're in the middle of the country. It's just flat farmland. And it's just them walking. And, and they're still all dressed to the nines. Yeah, and we have no idea where they're going. Like, nobody right. says anything. There's no discussion as to where they're going. They're just walking. They're just walking and walking and walking. And then it goes to another scene. And... The the next scene that we get to after the first walking scene is the ladies are in this cafe, and they're trying to order, but they can't seem to get anything because they're out of everything. They're trying to get tea, and there's no lemon to go with the tea. There's no milk to go with the tea. All right, we'll have coffee. No, there's no coffee either. It's like, well, do you have water? And I don't even think they get served their water. <laughs> He's like, well, I guess we could give you water, but, I mean, yeah. I don't know. We're just out of everything. And then as they're sitting around talking amongst themselves, there's this soldier, this young soldier who's sitting, like, by the window by himself. He looks very sullen. And... um he kind of looks like a young Terrence Stamp, actually. And he comes over. He comes over and he says, "Can I share a story with you?" And they're like, "Okay." You know, it's kind of like comes out of nowhere. And he's like, "How was your childhood? Like, you know, did you have a happy childhood?" And it's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I was fine." And what about you and you? And it's like, "Oh yeah, it was fine." And he's like, "Well, mine was horrible. Let me tell you about it." And so there becomes this like I don't I guess flashback or dream or something where he tells the story about how his father's going to send him off to military school after his mother dies, and he gets visited by these ghosts of his mother and her lover, which we're led to believe I guess um, was killed by her father by his father in some way. Well, it's. I think he's supposed to be. Is that his actual father? Is the dead soldier? I think so. Okay, because the man who says he's your father is not your father, kind of thing. And yeah, and then he gets his 
mother's ghost tells him exactly where some poison is and tells him how to poison his own father. It's shot really odd. I mean, the, the, the tone of these dream sequences, there's a couple that pop up, and they're usually very uh, related to military or police. They're kind of bloody, almost like a yeah. horror film. And they're shot much differently than the rest of the film in terms of tone. Yeah, I like the way that he shoots his mother, you know, that, that Bunuel shoots the mother character, how she never really, she's speaking, but her mouth never moves. Yeah. And so after he tells the story, we go back to the ladies at the cafe and he's like, you know, thank you for listening to me. And they're just sort of like, what was that all about? <laughs> you know, kind of dumbfounded as to why this guy would come out of the middle of nowhere and share this story with them. And again, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the bishop and, and the gardening and all this stuff. And gardening is part of his kind of theme because he talks about when he was a kid, his parents were killed um, and he was raised by the gardener and his parents were killed by poisoning. And then we have this scene a few scenes later where the young soldier is poisoning his father. So we kind of get some of these threads going through here as we go through. But again, there can be, you can try to tie these together or you can just let it wash over you. And the first time I watched it, I just kind of let it wash over me. I remember the first time I saw it, and I'll go more into this later, I really didn't like the film at all. I didn't get it. Like, I was trying to put it together. I was trying to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And I walked out very unsatisfied. Like, I was like, well, okay. At least I saw that. I don't know what people are raving about. And then years later, I got into it. And I go, oh, okay. I I can kind of get it. And, and, And this, I think, is part of the reason why the film works for me so well, is that it's part of what we had talked about before in terms of flexible art. Remember we right. had this discussion about how if something is so rigid, it can only be one thing. Uh, eventually it usually ends up breaking under its own weight. And I think that the reason why discrete charm works for me, and I would say most of Bunuel's films work for me is that there is no, it's only one thing. You can only have it be one thing. And therefore I can see it, you can see it, a lot of people can see it, and we can all get different things out of it. I think there's some general ideas in there, although he wasn't really willing to talk about some of them, that I think we can attach ourselves to. But I think overall, I I think it's much more flexible and open to our interpretations, like, as you were saying, much kind of like David Lynch. Yeah, there's a level of frustration when it comes to artists who are doing this kind of um, avant-garde art, where you're looking for an explanation and... I, I sometimes I get frustrated at Lynch where he doesn't want to give you anything, you know, or he'll give you very general things about, you know, what you're looking at. But then at the same time, I think it's like as time goes by, I appreciate that more that I'm able to bring what I want to bring to it and everybody can bring their own stuff to it and be able to, you know, experience this in their own way. You know, we can look at discrete charm and start to pull out things that make sense to us. I'm sure other people will have different interpretations of, of what is going on. One of the things also, when we talk about the, the use of the term bourgeoisie, which of course is obviously a much more European used word than it is here in America. Um, that would be, you know, the business class owners, the upper, the upper class, the upper middle class, not the aristocracy, not the ultra rich, but just sort of the, the ones right under them. And think about the, the things that are attached to that class and what these dinners mean. You know, this is the group that would 
be the ones who would entertain at home. These are the ones who would be watching Martha Stewart and getting Martha Stewart magazines and, you know, Bon Appetit delivered to their house and having, you know, possibly cooking staff like they have here that is supposed to make them dinner and, and help them entertain for their friends. And the idea of what dinner means, I mean, first off, when, when we talk about the idea of breaking bread together with someone, okay, that's the most base level thing. But I think that when we talk about dinner in, in the realm of this social class, it's much more about showing wealth, inviting someone into your home. Oh, look at, look at what fine, you know, China we have, look at what fine art we have on the wall, you know, our decor, our, you know, our fine, you know, wine or whatever, and things like that. And the ability to show wealth, and not only that, but as we were talking about with the with the martini scene, the ability to show that you are you are properly you know um, you've properly learned the graces you are you know a good person in social standing and you have you know you've been trained excellently in that way <laughs> yeah it's it, it, I, the thing that we really haven't talked about uh, yet was the scene with the student and uh, Fernando Ray seeing a student who's outside of his office and um we really don't know who she is or anything we only know through what fernando ray has told us uh sees her out there and she's playing with this toy dog and he goes and he takes a pot shot at the dog and kind of scares her away and it's yet another class that the bourgeoisie are kind of you know like separating themselves from in this case rather violently and later on rather violently as well but it's it's interesting who can fit into their social circles. And this, of course, is 72. And we've talked before about the revolutions of 68 and the people on the streets and stuff like that, especially with Mr. Freedom and all of the stuff on that episode related to um, the student uprising in Paris. And there's a scene later, as you were saying, not only between um, him taking a pot shot at these toy dogs that she has out on the street with his, uh, with his sniper rifle, but she shows up at his apartment and there's a scene between them. And then later he talks about, you know, student uprisings at this dinner party where he's like, like flies, you know, you just swat them, you know, <laughs> flies enter the room. You swat at the flies, no more flies. He was just talking about how, how revolution is handled in his sort of third world. We're led to believe sort of third world Latin American country. I love that dinner scene where he's talking about his country and just all the people coming up to him and saying, well, I hear that there's this going on. And he's like, no, 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 no. And just like everything that they bring up is what you, you know, hear about, like, I don't know, San Salvador in the eighties and seventies or, you know, just like, Oh, well, I hear that you're very oppressive to your students. I hear that, you know, people are, are very poor there. I hear about this. And every single time it's like, no, it's beautiful. You got to come there sometime. It's wonderful. <laughs> and just like paints it to be this, you know, paradise. And he, he smiles. I see. This is the thing that I like is that there's about three or four, maybe five different people that come up and quiz him on something that they've read in the paper. Like you have the highest homicide rate. Oh, no, no, no. You know, yeah. And all this. And he'll just sort of smile and laugh and nod and kind of get away from them. And then someone else comes over and it just sort of seems like he's trying to be nice. You know? Oh, yeah. It's like, I, I'm trying to be really nice to you. And, and this is almost like, um, like being a uh, the, the reporter that I've been over my years and interviewing politicians. And when you know something is a fact and you go to the politician, you're like, well, what about this? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, are you, are, are you saying this? 
you know, kind of thing and, and how they kind of want to dodge it and they want to get away from it. And just how – what's funny within the context of that, uh, one of the later dinner party scenes, is that how it keeps escalating. Like each one gets worse and then he eventually has enough and pulls out a gun and shoots the host, which then leads another person to wake up and it was their nightmare – supposedly that was this dinner party scene where Fernando Ray's character Don Raphael gets out of hand. So just the idea of these multiple levels, I think that's as we build towards the end of the film, that's really where we start seeing these levels within levels where you would think, Oh, okay, this must be, this must be Don Raphael's dream. No, it's actually the other guy that he works with. Yeah. And that's, I think it's right around the the hour mark. Is it where we start to really get into all of the different dreams and it, it's wonderful that we have this kind of um, layer upon layer in the way that it builds and everything. And you never know at that point what's real and what's not, who's going to wake up and where it is. Though I find it interesting that almost all of the people, and I want to say all of the people that have dreams or that relate these things, they're all men. There's no women having dreams or relating anything because we've got the soldier in the cafeteria kind of relating his story. We have the scene later on, which I know we'll get to with, with the soldiers, and there's a soldier who relates a story, a, a dream. And then we have the three men of our uh, couples. They're all relating their stuff. So I don't know what that says about it, but it was interesting that they're, they're the ones with the voice in this. Yeah. The the other thing that I think makes the film a little jarring for some people when we talk about this dream logic is that it is shot very traditional and very straightforward, and there is no score in a traditional sense in this film. Most of the music is sourced. I can only think of one place where there's music that isn't. And the other thing is is that the film is direct cut. It just cuts from one thing to the next. The only place that we have any sort of opticals or effects or anything is sometimes he'll use this focus out, focus in. and But there's no sort of tell as to is this reality, is this the dream? Because everything is shot in a very straightforward manner except for, as we were talking about, when someone is relating a story that is definitely has a supernatural element to it, meaning this, the, the young soldier who talks about his mother or the uh, when they get arrested and they end up in the jail and the guy's talking about the bloody lieutenant who comes on this one day every year and, and that whole thing. That obviously is it, – it's an obvious source that this thing is a dream, that this is odd, that something is out of order. But the quote-unquote day-to-day stuff is shot so plain and flat that I think that's another thing that throws people is because we're so used to having things – I don't want to say doctored, but we're used to be – we're used to getting tells as to when something is a dream or not. Right, whether it's an audio you know, kind of cue that we get every time a dream begins or – you know, the, the screen gets fuzzy and then comes back. You know, you do the whole, you know, uh, Wayne's World flashback kind of thing, you know. But, yeah, we have none of that in this. And there's no midgets. No, no midgets whatsoever, no giants showing up. So we don't have our typical dream cues, you know. And and even for Bunuel, there's no um – there's no sheep either. Like There's a thing with sheep usually that show up in his film from time to time, especially in The Exterminating Angel, which we'll talk a little bit about, which became a um, – which 
of, of all people to be influenced by um, his work, I thought was interesting was listening to the audio commentary years ago for Nightmare on Elm Street and Wes Craven saying that the sheep in the the one scene in the school going down the hallway was a was a nod back to Bunuel. Nice. Yeah, the one that got me was the piano that shows up in the bloody lieutenant scene. I was thinking of the uh, the the guy pulling the the rope with the donkeys and the bishops and the piano and all that from uh and and uh so I was glad to see that. That was a very interesting use of piano as torture instrument. <laughs> exactly. So so the the um the, the piano is wired to electricity and they're basically have the guy inside the piano and they're turning it up and for some reason cockroaches are falling out of the guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or out of the piano or something. I'm not sure. We talked about several different levels of this um of these dinners and one of which that's interesting and and I think this goes back to the idea of um dinner as as a show or dinner as you know, uh, pre presentation in some way is they find themselves on stage. Well, I love that just the, the beginning of that part when they, cause that, that's really kind of where things kind of tonally shift for me is there's a, a dinner that I had kind of mentioned, uh, briefly where they're sitting down to dinner and then all of a sudden all these sh soldiers show up and the soldiers come in and they kind of take over the place and then they leave just as they're about to be served. Uh, so yet another kind of aborted dinner. And uh, after they leave, a guy comes in and he's like, oh, yeah, I would love to have you over to my house for some dinner. And the way that he does the, you know, it's 17 rude or something or other. And the way that they cut to the 17 and then the camera swings around to show the name of the street. And then that kind of introduces them you know, going to this guy's dinner. And really for me, that's kind of where we get the, I don't want to say there's a split, but that's where we really start to get these dreams within dreams are is right around that point. And then, yeah, it's, it's great. His dinner, it, it, that kind of gets repeated a few times. If memory serves, I remember the, uh, the hat, the Napoleonic hat gets uh, worn by a few different people, but yeah, that whole idea of them inside of this room and the big reveal for that scenario. Not only that, but I, I love the scene where the military comes in and they try to be, you know, go get some more chairs and tables and let's set up. And, you know, we don't have a lot of food, but we'll try to do something for you. Because not only does the major or whatever come, but he brings his whole crew who happen to be doing military training nearby. And then they get called away just as they're about to have dinner. And then he comes back and there's all this, you know, bombs and war <laughs> sounds going off in the background. And the major comes back and goes, yeah, I'm sorry. I hope the sound doesn't bother you. You know, it's just, you know, we're going to have another half hour of this. And then there's going to be air raids. And then, uh, and then I think we're done kind of thing. And I just love the idea of that because without really saying it, it talks about this disconnect between the, the rich in war and just, I would say now, just people in war, especially in developed countries where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry that you had to see that on TV. I'm sorry that the reality and horror of war had to be delivered to your front door or your dinner table. Sorry about that. And especially right now, it, when this film was coming out in 1972, there was all that stuff with Vietnam, which, of course, was – 
called the first television war because they used to put all that. You would see stuff on TV. So just the idea that, you know, please don't let us inconvenience you. We're just off doing what we need to do in terms of the war stuff. Yeah, please, you know, forgive us. Sorry, it's so it's so gauche that we have to be doing this right now. Exactly. So we have these different dinners that keep getting interrupted and interrupted and interrupted. And so they get uh, busted by the police and for the drugs. <laughs> they get carted off. First they come in just for Don Raphael and his associate, and then they come after Henri, and they're like, oh, take the women too. Get them all out of here. And they take them down to, uh, down to the station. And so while they're in the station, the police are talking amongst themselves. And they're talking about, as we were talking previously a few minutes ago, about this bloody lieutenant and how he was just this really torturous guy and he would do all this stuff. And once a year, he comes back. It's sort of this, um, I guess, like uh, ghost story that the police tell amongst themselves. And this leads to this little dream sequence with him coming and opening the cells and letting them out. And then we cut to a phone call that comes in. And it's someone in the government calling to the station and going, yeah, those people you got, you got to let them out. And this is the sound obscuring again. There was a sound obscuring several times before, but this one is so deliberate and so funny. And yeah. I wanted to talk about it because on one end you have Michel Piccoli who's behind a um, – a desk. It actually kind of looks like the same uh, office that Don Raphael, the ambassador, has. And he's talking to him, and there's the sound of this plane going overhead. And it just gets louder. And he goes, you have to release him. And he's like, why? And you hear him, and he's really adamant, and he's talking, but you can't hear what he's saying. It's being obscured by the plane. And then on the other end, I believe it is the uh, the, the police captain or whoever is uh he's like huh what and the typing as you're saying just gets louder and louder and louder on the soundtrack and for me the idea of these sound poles because there's an earlier one where fernando ray is explaining something to the two gentlemen and i think it's the the sounds of the cars and all that outside obscures it is i think that what bunuel is trying to say is the plot's not important they you know why they're there it's not important what, what they got arrested for, who's releasing, that's not important. Like the ideas of regular, regular cinema, it just, it just doesn't matter. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's, it's such a slap in the face to somebody who's looking for a regular narrative that, you know, it, I was fine with it, but I can see people being like really upset about that because it's a major quote unquote plot point that is just completely, you know, not really meaningful to the story whatsoever. And I think a lot of this also plays into the idea that, you know, this is part of the reason why I like Bunuel is that I think what he's trying to say is that's all vanity, you know, that there are these larger issues and those are more important than these, you know, these details that you get hung up on in terms of plot. As the film continues to roll on, we have the, um, the priest show up in one scene, but then he eventually disappears uh, towards the end, and he gets called to absolve a man uh, on his deathbed to give uh, last rites. And this goes back to the earlier conversation as we were talking about about him explaining to someone about his his sorrowful young life, his parents were killed, and the gardener, and all that stuff. And I, I don't really want to ruin it, but it's just a 
I, I just laugh myself silly with that because of the level of hypocrisy that's on top of that whole scene. Plus, I like the woman, the old lady who kind of takes him to the scene. And as he's about to go in to give last rites, he's just like, hey, you know, we should talk, you know, because I really don't like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, I hate I hate Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, how can you hate Jesus? He's like, all right, I guess we'll talk about it later. I got to get in here. This guy's dying. I got to give him last rites. And who that is, is uh, her name's Mooney, M-U-N-I. And she had been in several of Bunuel's films uh, when he came back uh, to the continent, when he came back to Europe, she's in Diary of a Chambermaid. She has a, a good part in there and a few other films. But she's always this odd little character. Like he uses her in like odd particular ways. But in here, she's hilarious. Yeah, she is great. And yeah, she looks so just discombobulated. <laughs> so we get into near the final dinner scenes here. And we think, all right, finally, they're going to sit down. They're going to eat finally got it situated right so everything's going well they're at the manor house everything's good they're talking about various things they got the stuff lined up and you know the the uh, the, the servers come out and she starts serving them and and all this stuff and, and and you can tell something's a little odd because they're like Inez how old are you she's like oh i'm 53 it's right it's like what she looks like she's 20 <laughs> yeah yeah, and she she was the maid when uh, the one guy was a little boy. Yeah, which is like just him throwing in these odd asides because you know it's obviously not true. This this woman's probably twenty three years old, but she just it just just grabs you and you're like, what? You know, something's off. So they're all sitting around and they're eating, and then the uh, the doors break in again, but this time it's not the cops. It's like a bunch of gangsters. And they start shooting up the place. And who is the first person to get under the table? Oh, yeah. Don Raphael. Don Raphael. Right under. He gets right under the table. And the gangsters come in. And they bring everyone over. And they're like, all right, line up. you know. And they just machine gun them all down. <laughs> and they're about to leave. The gangsters are about to leave. And they see this hand come up and grab the food off the plate. And they're like, whoa, wait, there's someone under there. So they start shooting up the table. And then they lift up the uh, the tablecloth, and he's under there eating. Right. You know? And it's just sort of the, the idea being at that point for me, it's like, damn it, I'm not letting anything get in the way. It's like, I don't care. It's like, kill them, uh, kill me, I'm going to eat something, damn it, because I'm <laughs> going from place to place, and I haven't been able to get, get my needs satisfied at all. And then that's when he wakes up. So we get the feeling that, okay, well, maybe this is his nightmare now. When Before, when he shot the one guy, that was another guy's nightmare. And he goes into the kitchen, and what's the first thing he does? Makes himself a sandwich. There you go. So, <laughs> so and then the film ends, I guess, if you want to say it has a, a closure to this plot, with just them walking down the road. No score, just the sound of heels, you know, on concrete walking down the road same shot we've seen before roll credits yeah so want to talk about the ideas of the film i mean obviously we talked about this idea of class class struggle show of wealth um symbols the idea of respecting symbols and not, maybe not so much people but the symbols and the things that they represent but to me like i said the first time i saw it 
it um it didn't work for me at all i i couldn't relate to it and i went back probably 4 or 5 years later and saw it again and i was like man this is brilliant and i think one of the things that i get from it as sort of a universal is and and i talked a little bit about it in the opening is that that scene of them walking down the road i think is the universal human condition i think that no matter how hard we try that we're always looking for something that we're never really satisfied with what's in front of us just out of curiosity when did you first see the film like how old were you uh i think i saw it in my late teens early 20s and then a f i think I revisited it probably around uh, 22 or so. Mm -hmm. So so I think there was a little growth there. I mean, I know that I bought it right after the time that Criterion put it out. So they put it out in 2000 because they did this remastering and release of all of Buñuel's films that they could get their hands on um, for the 100th anniversary of his birth since he was born in 1900. It's funny – to see how we change when it comes to, you know, the movie didn't change, obviously, but you brought different things to it. And it's nice to hear, because usually, I don't know, usually for me, it seems like I watch something when I was younger, but usually it's when I was way younger than I watch it now. And it's like, yeah, what was I thinking? Or, you know, that just didn't work that well. But it's nice when the reverse happens, when you can look at something and really appreciate it that you didn't appreciate the first time. Yeah, I think it's partly that because, I mean, I think age gives you uh, a better filter, a better context. But I also think that what made me appreciate it as well was going back and looking at other films that Bunuel had done. And one that I had told you that was worth taking a look at if we were going to talk about Discrete Charm is what I would call probably the prequel <laughs> is uh, The Exterminating Angel. And wanted your thoughts on that. That one was a little tougher for me to watch. Um, I don't know if it was just that not as much happened. and uh, But for some reason, it, it was just a little bit more. I, I liked how it began with all of the servants kind of, you know, they're getting ready to have this big dinner. And in this one, it's just one dinner scene. Getting ready to have this big dinner and all the servants are leaving. And, you know, as you find out later on, it's almost like rats from a sinking ship kind of thing. And they have this dinner and they find that they can't leave the house, which is just this nice kind of, you know, surreal twist to it. Like they're trapped in this house and eventually the police come and they're trying to figure out how they can, you know, get these people out and all this stuff. But it wasn't as, um, I wasn't as drawn in for some reason. I don't know if it was the characters uh, that I couldn't relate to them as easily, but I just, I wasn't into that one as much. Not to say I didn't enjoy it, but I just wasn't nearly as into that as I was with Discreet Charm. Yeah. I think part of the reason why um, it would be harder to relate when it comes to Exterminating Angel is that we don't have uh, characters that we've really bought into all that much. Uh, it's more about scenario than it is about characters. And I think that what we get with Discrete Charm is that we get a blending of both characters and scenario and how these characters play within it. And I think that's the reason why you could probably relate to that a little bit more. Also, it's probably one of the better films that Bunuel made in Mexico. He made this one about 10 years earlier in, when he was living in Mexico at the time. And his Mexican period is kind of hit or miss. I mean, you has, he has things like Los Ovidaldos, which is a, an amazing film, and Exterminating Angel, I think, is another high watermark. 
Um, but that period in Mexico, uh, he was dealing with uh, smaller budgets, uh, shorter production schedules and things like that. So by the time he comes back to Europe in the late – into the early 60s and then and past that, um, he – gets bigger budgets and more time and and better things to work with uh, in terms of what, what he's dealing with. Uh, I think that why I would call it the prequel in a way is that it sort of um, it, it sort of mirrors a lot of the ideas of discrete charm in that instead of having people not be able to eat, they are eat they eat and then they're trapped in the house. And then really what it becomes about more than anything is how society breaks down when you force people to be on top of each other and how these things that are valued among the aristocracy or this, you know, ruling classes, upper class, all start to fall away. That basically, I think it's a very cynical film, uh, kind of at times like Discreet Charm, and that Bunuel is saying that all of this is artifice. The way that you deal with people, how you deal with them, how you treat them is has all kind of been programmed into you. But if we can kind of strip all that away, then we find this base layer that really is very crude and not very nice. Yeah, and they do, they fall into chaos very quickly. Yeah, definitely in that one. It it takes a it takes a little while in discreet charm for people like um like the whole scene we were talking about with Don Raphael and him being constantly quizzed about his home country and then losing it. Yeah, the one thing you know we we talked to or you talked to John Baxter earlier played back that interview and I read his book and I was very impressed when it came to what Bunuel did in his career as far as, you know, we've talked so many times about artists who, you know, they want to, you know, say what they want to say. They want to do their art the way that they want to do it and they have it taken away from them or they have it, they can't find the funding for things. And I'm not going to say that Bunuel was rich by any means because he seemed to be, you know, very much, looking for a paycheck as he was going through and, you know, doing his, you know, due diligence when it came to, you know, working at this Mexican studio, as you were talking about, and, you know, kind of tried to get into the Hollywood game, but found it wasn't for him and, and really wasn't really given that much of an opportunity when it came to that. But I appreciate that all of his work seems to be very much his own. He doesn't seem to be somebody who really ever, um, kowtowed to the the powers that be it seemed like he was really in charge of what he was doing and I, I, that's the one thing i really appreciate about his work and his career i think part of it has to do uh with also the fact that his films are not um reliant on things that would be extremely expensive i think that for him it would be more about okay we got to build a set or we got to find a house and I got to pay these actors, <laughs> you know, and from what I read about Discreet Charm, it was made for under a million dollars in 1971, 72. So that is, okay, do inflation now, that's a little bit of money, but it's still relatively inexpensive. And I think that that was where he was able to kind of get that latitude to be as creative as he was, is that his budgets were so small. Yeah, and the the thing that you had talked about with Exterminating Angel and how it's kind of the precursor to Discreet Charm, as I was reading the the Baxter book, I had Discreet Charm in my head as far as that we would be talking about it and the whole idea of, you know, this dinner party that never kind of happens kind of thing. And I noticed that that theme came up time and again as they were talking about different movie ideas because his kind of idea generation 
is very fluid when it comes to where he's going or different themes that he wants to explore. And so I enjoyed to see that, you know, there was that idea of the dinner party with exterminating angel. And I think that that had come up a few other times as he was doing this. And it was, you know, before exterminating angel, he came up with the idea and it just took him a while for it to gestate. And then, you know, like any good artist, he was able to return to it and kind of expand upon it for discreet charm. And I think one person that you really have to talk about when you talk about Bunuel's later period, when he comes back to Europe and works in France until his, you know, his death, is Jean-Claude Carré. And we're going to take another break. And we'll hear an interview I did recently with Jean-Claude Carré, the longtime collaborator with Louise Bunuel and the co-writer of The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to talk to you. I've been a, a big a fan of your work for many years. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, serious. No, yeah. I, you are. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I'm trying to do as well as I can, you know, and uh, I'm working. I'm, I'm 82 years old now, you know, so uh, it's about time to do something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think you've done well over the time. Believe me, if uh, if, if I don't I don't I don't complain about my life. I mean, uh, my life was full, you know, of uh, many different experiences and quite interesting. But about my work, I, you know, I have no opinion. I do my best. That's all. You know. you, you leave that to other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you. Um, when you first started writing, uh, it's my understanding, did you start off as a novelist? Or did you always interest in film? Yes, I start, uh, I, no, I start by the way, the, the first money I, I made in my life was as a cartoonist. And I'm, I'm still a drawer. I have an exhibit right now in Paris of my drawings. I have been, you know, drawing all my life, every day. It's like a, it's like a book, you know, of, of drawings. It's a long gallery of drawings that uh, keeps me company, you know, all my life long. And then I, when I was a, still a student, I wrote a novel, which was published, and that was the, the the gate, you know, the first door open to to another world. <laughs> Yeah, and and then from there you got into film because you did some. Uh... No, uh, exactly. Should I get into some details? Oh sure. I was twenty five, twenty four, and uh, my publisher, uh, whose name is Robert Lafont, uh, had a contract with Jacques Tati. You know, with Jacques Tati, uh, he was a filmmaker who made Mr. Hulot's Holidays and My Uncle. He won the, the Oscar. He had a, he had a contract with Tati to, uh, publish two novels, uh, inspired by two of the Tati's films, Mr. Mr. Hulot's Holidays and, and My Uncle, which he, which Tati was shooting at that time. So he organized a sort, sort of small contest between his young, uh, writers, Lafon, and I won the contest. I wrote a chapter. I won the contest and, and that he received me. And that's how I put my first foot, you know, in the movie business. That was in, in 56, and a long time ago. <laughs> what do you remember about Tati? Did you have uh, interactions? Oh, yes. You know, I, I have known Tati all his life long uh, until uh, three months before he died. 
And to me, he is one of my three or four masters that I have met in my life. You know, the, he was not a, a, a man, a, a, a not easygoing, as you say. You know, he was not so nice to 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 work and life, but it was extremely uh, uh, demanding and interesting and, and extremely talented as a mime. It was to, to, due to Tati and due to Pierre Etex. You know Pierre Etex, E-T-A-I-X, uh, who was his first uh, assistant. And uh, and that's with Pierre Etex, then a few years later, I will start writing and making films too. So, and Pierre Etex and Jacques Tati, both of them together, introduced me into a new world, which is the world of the cinema. But I didn't know anything. I was a viewer. I was a spectator. I loved, uh, I was a real moviegoer. You know, even a movie buff. I was going to the cinematheque and cine clubs and so. But I didn't know anything about how to make a film. And Tati had the feeling, you know, very sort of intuition that in order to write a book based on his films, I had to know how the films had been made. You know what I mean? So he sent me to, to this, uh, to his editing room with his editing lady. And, uh, I spent two weeks totally alone with her and step by step, image by image, scene by scene, she introduced me in a new world. It was like a really a sort of initiation you know, that, I, that I will never forget. And out of that, you went on to make some film on your own? Yes. Then with Piratex, we wrote uh, some short films uh, that we uh, co-wrote and co-directed. And the second, uh, called Happy Anniversary, won the Academy Award in Hollywood, you know, as as, uh, the best short film. So the producer gave her the opportunity to make a, a feature film, which was a great success called The Sweeter, and which is still on, you know, or here and there in, in, in the world. And uh, from from that moment, I was, I, I, I never stopped. Of course, I, I kept writing and publishing books. Then I went to the theater. I worked with Peter Brook for 34 years. But I never... Uh, uh, cease to to work for for the films and right now I'm talking to you in front of me I have a script you know, on the uh, on the computer yeah that's pretty great to be able to continue to do the work all the way from yes uh, and of course later uh, I, I became you know the Jack Lang was minister of culture asked me to to found a new film school you know which called the Femis and I I was the founder and the chairman of that school for 10 years, which kept me in contact with the new and young filmmakers. And all, all over the world, you know, I have uh, directed, I don't know how many workshops, both for theater and for uh, screenwriting. The, the, the latest one was in uh, uh, last year in, in Jerusalem at the Sam Spiegel School, Film School, which is a rather good school. So I, I'm, that's, you know, half, more than half of my life is devoted to the, to the cinema, no doubt. Do you remember when you met Bonuel and what your original, um, yes, of course, uh, 
You know, I, I met Benoit in 63, quite uh, after, right after the suite of the film with Caritex, which opened in 62. I met Benoit in the, at the Cannes Film Festival. He was looking for a young, uh, between quotes, you know, a, a young uh, film uh, screen writer. And uh, it was for Diary of Chandler to, to see him. And once again, he, I was chosen, you know. After a week or two, the producer told me that I was going to, to Madrid to work with Binwell. That was in 63, and we worked together for 20 years, until he died for 19 years. He died in 83. So that was, of course, one of the main, uh, and the most uh, important, how could I say, intense uh, uh, moments of my life. You know, working with Binwell was, to me, extraordinary. But I never, even with Vinuel, I never stopped, you know, working with Peter Brook and, and doing other things. You were obviously considerably un- younger than Bunuel. How did that sort of lead to... Uh, yes, Vinuel was born in 1900, and I was 31 years younger. Uh, of course, there, there was, I was in, from another generation. And uh, at, at the very beginning, when we w- were working together, uh, I suppose I was tempted to say yes to everything he, he, he was proposing. You know what I mean? I was a, a great admirer of his films. He, he had got the, the, the Golden Palming Khan and so many awards here and there. So I, I didn't dare to oppose, you know, to, to say no. To, and uh, he asked me and he asked the producer to tell me that from time to time, I had to say no. So from that moment, from the second film we, we made together was Belle de Jour, that we wrote together, then we became real collaborators, and more than that, uh, close friends, and maybe uh, almost members of the same family. Until today, you know, the grandsons and daughter of Binuel are good friends of my grandsons and, and, and daughters, you know. It's like two families. It was a, a great encounter to me in my life. You talked about how it developed into a collaboration. What was the process like in putting together these scripts? You know, the process was always the same. Uh, we, we would go, the two, the two of us, without friends, without wives, or totally alone in a, in, a, in a very remote place, you know, far from the big cities, and always in Spain or in Mexico. And then we would spend weeks and weeks, just the two of us, you know, hours and hours in my, always in my room, facing each other and working. That's difficult to say, to explain what's, what's work. But, uh, and then after, let's say, two months, we would uh, we would reach a first uh, how could I say first version of the script. Then we would part, spend two or three or four months far from each other, and meet again on the same script. You know, and we would do that three, four, sometimes five times. Like for the discreet uh, charm of the bourgeoisie, we watched five different versions of the film. So that, that was, the, the, but it was a complete uh, concentration you know, without any sort of, uh, how could I say, entertainment. 
out of the art of the work. And it was not, not so easy, especially when for a young man, I was young at the time, you know, no sex, no nothing, you know, you were for two months sometimes. I let you guess what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about Discreet Charm, and you said there were various versions of it. Um, yeah. What do you remember about the writing process? How the idea came together? No, no, I, I don't. Re- I can't not remember uh, in the details. You know, that's absolutely impossible. How can you? That was a long time ago, forty years ago. But uh, I, I remember there was five different versions, and uh, the more we went, at, at one moment I don't remember if it was in the second or third uh, version. Uh, we, with the dreams, intervene. You know, the dreams entered the film, the script. Uh, and so far, there were no dreams. And the dreams gave us a certain new uh, feeling of uh, of uh, freedom, of liberty. That's all, that's all I remember. The idea was, of course, from the very beginning, that just a group of friends are trying to have a dinner together, and they can't. So for now, which are the causes? For which reasons? That's the, that was the, the main questions every day. You know? Everything has to be a little uh, strange, a little unusual, but not uh, impossible, not irrealist. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a uh, there was a very narrow uh, border between what's possible and what's impossible. When you sat down to write Discreet Charm with Bunuel, do you remember if he said, you know, here are themes or ideas that I wanted, or was it just to carry no, on? That, that, no, that, that's uh, impossible, because one starts, you know, a phrase, and the other one continues, you know, it's impossible to say which one, you know, has, but the Discreet Charm, Phantom of Freedom, that, you know, uh, the Milky Way, it's impossible to, to absolutely impossible to say which one. It, it was even impossible at the time, you know, to, 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 to share this is mine, this is yours. Impossible. And anyway, it, it has no meaning at all. Was that uh, liberating for you or was that a real challenge in order to have that kind of writing, that kind of style to do that kind of thing? No, it was, it was a real challenge. I mean, when you, you work with Bill you are facing Bill for two or three months, face to face, you know, 10 hours a day. Uh, uh, you, you, you find yourself at the, the final of the Olympic Games. There is no upper level. You know what I mean? You, you have to give your best. Uh, if not, he will notice it, and uh, uh, and he, he won't need you anymore. But the fact that every time he was asking for me to work with him, that was very encouraging. And at this time, when you were doing Discreet Charm, he had started to lose his hearing. Did that make it harder? No, no. He was uh, he was that from the beginning, since I met him. You know. He had he was he had a he had a little engine you know to to a hearing aid uh, and when we were the two of us in a room he would understand rather well what I was already uh, uh, deaf. One of the uh, actors who worked with Bunuel quite a bit and and several of the films that that you wrote with him was Fernando Ray. Do you what do you remember of him? Of course, very well, very well. He was a good friend, Fernando. I. I, he came to, to have a lunch here in my house in Paris uh, three months before he died, after having shot uh, Don Quixote for the Spanish TV. Of course, he was uh, 
I, I liked uh, Fernando a lot. It was a sort of uh, aristocratic uh, Spanish Hidalgo, you know, with with some sadness inside somewhere, you know, with a sort of nostalgia of something very elegant, uh, uh, very very uh, educated. I mean, uh, it, it, no, it was a pleasure to 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 be. I, I remember once Fernando took me in in Barcelona, just the two of us. And he wanted to show me the small theaters where he had made his debut in the late 30s, you know. And uh, most of the theaters were destroyed, you know. Uh, one had been turned into a, a, a big store, you know. But it was very uh, nostalgic and melancholic to go with Fernando trying to, to, to find uh, the past in the streets of Barcelona. He always, in some ways, seemed to be um, in Bunuel's films and in the films she wrote with Bunuel. Um, do you think he was maybe a stand-in for Bunuel in some way? That he was uh, Bunuel? Uh, that Fernando was what? Eh? That if, do you think Fernando Ray was sort of a stand-in for Bunuel in his films in some way? Uh, he, he, Bunuel had, uh, no, not at all. Bunuel was, uh, no, didn't need this. But Fernando was... Buñuel worked with two Spanish actors, Fernando Rey and, and Francisco Rabal, who was in Nazarene, you know, and, and in Veridiana. And the two of them were completely different and are two aspects of Spain. You know, one is popular, uh, 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 Francisco Rabal, and the other more aristocratic. You know, there are like uh, two faces of the same... Uh, uh, tradition, the same culture, the same country. Yeah, but uh, none of them did well, had a, such a strong personality, you know, that he, he was, of course, uh, he was Bill well, no doubt. And Bill well also, uh, uh, in the second part of his life, uh, got something from Mexico, you know. He, he got, he took the Mexican nationality, you know, in the late 50s, and so too that he was able to go back to Spain and shoot to Veridiana with a Mexican passport. And uh, something uh, in Mexico, you know, attracted him a lot. He, he never considered himself as exiled in Mexico. You, know, you understand what I mean? And all, always and only thinking about uh, Spain. No, it was, uh, it was totally Spanish and in the same time, totally international. That was one of his uh, contradictions. You talked about the writing process with him. Did you ever write any other scripts with Bunuel that never got produced? And do you remember what they yes, were? Uh, y yes, two, two. One was uh, at the very beginning, right after the uh, Chambermaid, and the film wasn't made because the two producers had, had a fight. <laughs> they they fought and they separate and they, the the film wasn't made. And then the last one at the end of his life, we wrote a a, a script which has been published in 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 Spain, but he gave up uh, making it. He was eighty one, eighty two, and uh, he was too tired. And he said to me one day, very sadly, he said that was one of the saddest days in my life. He told me, Jean Claude, this is over. Do you remember what those stories were? What those scripts were about? Of course, of course. Uh, the, the, I said the the, the 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 script has been published. 
in Spain. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was uh, uh, taking place inside a group of young terrorists. But it was uh, uh, terrorists, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was not not a totally realistic film. You had such a long collaboration with him, and, and as you said, just even now through the generations, there's a family connection. And was just wondering if you could talk about writing um, "My Last Sigh" with him. Yes, uh, after he gave up, you know, making shooting the last uh, script we had written, he was in Mexico doing nothing, you know. And uh, all along these 20 years, I had uh, uh, written down a lot of notes about his life because we have been talking a lot about uh, his life, my life. And so, so I said to him, uh, why don't we, we should make a, a book about you. And he said, no, 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 at any price. Uh, anybody today writes his memoirs and I don't want to write mine. So just to convince him, I wrote, I was in Mexico. I wrote just a chapter, you know, uh, of the of the book, just to show him how the book could be not a book of memories, but a book that would be like a like a portrait, you know, like a, you know what I mean, like a photograph almost of Bilmer. And then he was convinced, and then we start working together in Mexico, the two of us, exactly as if it were a script. You know, working in the morning, and I was writing in the afternoon, and so on. And the book went, uh, as you know, all over the world. It's one of my favorite books. As a matter of fact, I love the um, the, the piece at the end. I often quote to people about him uh, talking about how he would love to leave the grave and go pick up some papers, like yeah, yeah, pick up the bagatelles and come back. Right? I, I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's just a it's a beautiful book. It's it's very well done, and yeah. You know, it's, it's sad when, as you were saying, he got to the end and he knew that he just couldn't do this last script. He was way too tired. And what do you remember about sort of your final times with him before he passed away? Well, I, I saw him in Mexico uh, three months before he died. You know, I was going to see him all the time. You know, we were, as I told you, we were very close. And um, he, he knew he had, a, in the last three or four months, he was already 83, you know, and he had a cancer, and he knew he was dying, and there was nothing to do. So I went to see him. Uh, it was, needless to say, it was very sad, a very sad encounter. I knew, we both knew that it was the last one. And uh, at the end, he took me outside in Mexico in the street, uh, out of his uh, house, and uh, without a word, he took me in, in his arms and uh, for the last time, and then he turned away and went back to his house. And I, uh, that was the last time I saw him. I just have a few more, and then I'll let you go. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. No, it's, you know, I said to myself once that I would never, never uh, uh, refuse to talk about Benoit. You know, it was so important in my life, and it was such a warm personality, you know, and he gave me so much that, uh, you know, I have a depth, you know, towards Pinel. Don't worry about him. You can, you can ask me. <laughs> the, um, as for you now, um, as you said, you just turned 82 and you're still doing the work. Uh, what are some of the things you're working on now? And uh, You know, to, to, uh, 
this week there is an op- the, the, the day after tomorrow there is the opening of the exhibit in a in a gallery in Paris and a lot of uh, drawings but some of them some are drawings of well you know remembering uh, me of my life uh, of our life together and some drawings also uh, are attached after some films some you know when you work together with uh, and when you know more or less how to draw it's very convenient to instead of trying to explain by words uh, to give the other person an image you understand what I mean? That's what I did all my life, not only with Binuel, but with Milos Forman, uh, Vaida, Volker Schlendorf, you know, all the, the Riemann, all the directors I've been working with. It it allows you to sort of storyboard or um, cartoon scenes. The storyboard of my life, yes, more or less. <laughs> and also what I like a lot, I mean, I have never been a photographer. I don't like to, between the word and me, to put a camera. You know, I like to have a direct contact with what I see. I've been traveling a lot of my long, uh, all, all my life long, you know, to Mexico, the States, India, and Africa, everywhere. So, but I have a good visual memory. So when something strikes me or interests me, you know, in the street, even in, a, in, a, in my street in Paris, when I come back to my place, the, the very day, before going to bed, I I do a drawing of what, it's not exactly what I have seen, but it's the memory of what I have seen. You understand what I mean? What I remember of that person, of that uh, tramp, of that beautiful girl that I have met in the street. You know, that that's, and I, I love to do this. It's like uh, as if these uh, characters, you know, would keep me company, you know, all all, all my life long. You know, and, and I have a long gallery. I have thousands, thousands and thousands of of, uh, of drawings. So uh, I don't know. Now there is a man who who saw them and he published them in a book, and now they want to to sell them. So maybe I, I am at the very beginning of a new career. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you are, you are talking to a to a painter, and you don't don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> this will be. Uh, what your third or fourth uh, career? I guess he started. A yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I went and I have. I, I do already for a certain time, and uh, I did it in America uh, this year, and in in Berkeley, San Francisco, Houston. I'm telling the Mahabharata. You know, with Peter Brook, we spend a lot of time adapting the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, and now I'm telling as a storyteller on stage to an audience. And I did it in English, I did it in French, uh, lately, the, the last month, and it goes very well. And I love to do it. I love to transmit to, to any audience in the world something that comes from India and that nobody knows, not even in India, because it's, it's a very long, long poem. It takes a whole year, if you want to read it, you know, completely. So uh, even I'm going to do it in India, in Singapore, and and, and in some other cities. So that uh, you know, I'm also a, a storyteller going going around <laughs> and doing drawings at the same time. Yeah. I don't know exactly who I am, <laughs> and so much the better. <laughs> it's it's interesting, um, you know. 
being someone who's in their 80s, you're still very vibrant and still doing all this work. And what is it that still fires you? What makes it interesting for you? Curiosity. I think if, if, if you and me, we were born on the planet Mars, that would be very boring. But the Earth is, is a planet where it's impossible to bore yourself. You, you know what I mean? Even, even if what we see is very often awful, horrible, disgusting. Anyway, it's never boring. And this curiosity to explore, you know, as many possibilities of, uh, of life, of history, of uh, customs, of everything around me, all my life kept me going, kept me, you know, awake and, and going places. That, that, that's, uh, I think it's the, the key word. As far as I am concerned, I'm not, it's not an advice that I give to, to anybody else. It's curiosity, yes. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me. No, it, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Call me from time to time. Call me in another 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I just... Um... You know, just to get back to the beginning, and you're very humble, but it just the the films that you did with uh, with Bunuel have been just a constant companion. I find so many new things and so much inspiration. I really love them, and thank you so much. Yeah, I could say obviously listen. Thank you very much, and uh, I really appreciate what you say. Uh, but I'm, I am a worker. You know what I mean. I'm a, a little worker who's doing doing his best to know. Uh, his uh, his place, his language, language he's using, the language of the of the films, and um, that's all. I'm doing my best, and uh, well, as long as possible. Okay, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll keep going okay. strong. We'll talk. Take okay. care. Okay. All the best. Okay, and don't don't forget to to call me in another fifteen years. Okay. Okay. We'll put on a calendar. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you to Mr. Carrier for joining us on the show. Also, as he said, he does have some of his art up currently in Paris in a gallery show, and you can find out more about that and his work and all the things that you need to know at our website, projection-booth.com. Now, when we talk about a film like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, it is not a, um, it's, it's not a simple continental drama or continental comedy uh, in that way that would have been out in the 1970s. So the question is, how do you sell this film, Mike? Yeah, good luck. Well, I found online through the magic of eBay the press book that 20th Century Fox, who distributed it, used in order to uh, get folks into the theater. And, and I love this thing. I, I bought this oh, man. I bought this recently. And um, Just so folks know, like a lot of these press books – they're hilarious because they'll have like ideas for promotions inside of them. You'll know, have the ads that you can run with them. And like, I, I remember the one for the Travis McGee movie, it was like, you know, have a tough guy contest and all that, you know, and it's like, so what, what were the ideas for Fox? How did they suggest that theater owners market this thing? Well, the one thing that, that I find funny is that on all the posters that are in here, um, it's uh, they got they got one thing wrong. The screenplay was not written by Bunuel and Jean Paul Carrier, Jean Claude Carrier, 
although they do f- uh, fix that when you get to the actual technical credits that are in one of these press books. But the various sort of one sheets and things like that are kind of cool. This thing's about um, it's about 12 pages. It's about the size of a legal size paper. And uh, the, the synopsis is pretty hilarious because it tries to make sense of it in some way. And then there are two pieces that are written about uh, Bunuel creates this uh, masterful comedy filled of surprises, some vital facts on Bunuel and his career. But I love the uh, the exploitation page, which is the, the, the last um, inside page. It says, seldom has a motion picture received universal accolades as the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and has... Uh, Inspired from critics of every kind of publication and media outlet, newspaper critics, TV, radio commentators, national magazines from Time, Newsweek, and the Sunday Review to Rolling Stone have all been not merely enthusiastic, but glowing in the reviews of this rare entertainment delight. So what they really talk about is trying to get the college kids. And it has a thing Uh. about your campus campaign, college editors, teachers of film and drama programs, motion picture clubs, young filmmakers, and just about every moviegoer on campus who reads magazines, watches TV, or listens to radio knows something about Louis Bunuel's new film. It would be impossible for them to have not caught a review at a media outlet. It says um, in the press book, you have layout for your screening programs and you can, you know, take out ads and try to get the editor or the department head to come see the film. And they actually have a sample letter in here, you know, Oh wow! On, on how you should write to them and say, you know, basically it's a capsulation of what I said, you know, seldom in recent years has there been a motion picture this great. You should come see it. And then they have spreading the word off campus. When inviting regular media representatives to your screening, be sure to include reviewers and writers of every kind of publication. It says, everyone in the arts is aware of the works of Louis Bunuel, and all, <laughs> and all will be interested in, in commenting on the new film and telling their readers to see it. So scout Basically, out. <laughs> if you don't like this, you're stupid, because look at all the people that do, right? Yeah, and then it's like, uh, scout out your TV and radio station commentators, talk show MCs, and even disc jockeys that would be apt to speak up this one-of-a-kind film. And it says, um, use the one-sheet poster campaigns. I like this. Um, surrealism, which uh, which most are familiar with through the paintings of Salvador Dali, which is funny that, I mean, obviously there's a connection between the two, but by the 1970s, they kind of hated each other. Anyhow, right. concerns itself with the world of just below conscious reality, the world of dreams and slightly tilted images of what we ordinarily see as real. Teachers of art, literature, and film programs are, of course, most familiar with surrealism and would be eager to hear any kind of suggestion that discrete charm could be used on the subject for seminars on surrealism. Contact department heads for the names of those teaching such courses and invite them to a screening. When a seminar is scheduled, you should arrange to have them announce it in the campus newspapers. But this one, this is the best. Uh, Use surrealism theme for a contest. Announce in all college newspapers that you're holding a discreet charm of the bourgeoisie art contest in keeping with the film's surrealist theme. Three weeks before your engagement, ask readers to submit drawings or paintings with surrealist themes to your theater, and you'll put them on display. Have an art professor judge the contest, and and they could win awards such as art supplies, books on surrealism, and passes to the film. Invite TV news program directors to your theater when the display is up, and you're sure to get coverage. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it's it's pretty funny how they tried to figure out how to sell this thing. Also, the, the one thing, and I've never been able to figure out who the artist is because it's not in the criterion, nor is it in the press book, and I was hoping it would be. Uh, it may have just been an in-house designer that did it, although I don't want to think that it is. Um, is the the poster design for the American release, which is uh, a, a pair of legs with a big pair of lips and this boulder hat. Now, the reason why I'm interested in trying to find out who this is is because I have decided to dedicate uh, a, a portion of my skin to this uh, poster art because I love the film so much. And so I got that done about two years ago uh, for my birthday, thanks to a friend who paid for it. <laughs> and... Um, the I haven't been able to find out exactly who the artist is, but when Fox released um, two of Bunuel's films that came out back to back, one was The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and the other was The Phantom of Liberty, they had similar design element in terms of the poster. The, the Phantom of Liberty, instead of being a pair of lips, is an ass, and mm -hmm. it's the Statue of Liberty, but the torch is kind of melting or bent. But the one thing I was looking at when I look at the uh, the poster design, which I know from interviews that Bunuel didn't like, he thought it was a terrible poster design, is that it kind of almost looks like the same design, and you would be familiar with this because of your research into Elliot Gould, like the MASH poster design. It totally does, yeah. Well, I wonder if I can find out who did the MASH one and then see if they list other works. I just thought it was interesting because they're using um with with MASH if you haven't seen it it's it's a you know the victory piece hand but with a pair of what sexy legs isn't it? Right, yeah, kind of hot lips as legs there. Yeah. So this is okay, you've got a pair of legs and you've got these lips and then the other one you've got a pair of legs but with a butt. So <laughs> I was just wondering if this was part of a whole idea that 20th Century Fox was going through. Now, of course, this came out two, three years after, um, as we talked about on the show, Myra Breckenridge. So 20th Century Fox still trying to tap into the youth market in the early 1970s. I don't necessarily know if Discreet Charm would have played to the youth market. Um, maybe to those who were a little more hip. Uh, it, it, I don't think it's a head film in that way. It, I, <laughs> it's funny the way that they're talking about marketing this to these different audiences. It's a little exploitative, as you said, but it's also something that just isn't done anymore. And I wonder if it kind of should be because, you know, I remember when I was working at um, a movie theater, we never got these kind of, you know, I mean, we were encouraged to promote films and we kind of came up with our own stuff. I talked about the promotion that we did with uh, Fire Walk With Me. But we really, you know, that was all from our own stuff. That wasn't like, you know, we would get packets of information that would tell us like, oh, you might want to do this. I mean, of course, we got the standees and those and posters and all this kind of stuff. But we never got a, a, a one sheet to tell us like, oh, you might want to reach out to this market or that market. I mean, it wasn't at a theater by theater level at that point as far as marketing goes. And these days, it's just like, you know, they're, they're really is barely any tie between the theater, the movie and the patron that comes in. It's, you know, the, the theaters are kind of neutral, you know, it's, I go to a theater based upon like my rewards points or my, you know, if they serve iced tea or if they have that cool, uh, uh, flavoring for the popcorn, it's not based on the way that they promote themselves. And so there's none of that kind of, 
you know, marketing stuff that they had, you know, in these press packs. And I love that they have these different ideas and the different ways that you can, you know, get your, your word out to your audience and that they are very specific when it comes to who the audience for this film might be. And it really is the, the great thing. If you've never looked at a press book and you're a film fan, I, I suggest that, you know, you can get them really cheap on eBay or you can find them in various places. Some of them have been chopped up because especially when we talk about press books for exploitation films, a lot of times what they would do is they would actually cut the art out of these and give them to the newspaper and they would run the ads. Like they had a space at the bottom where you can put your own type for your address and things like that. But um, but this is pretty amazing in terms of the various different designs they've created for various ads and posters and 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 things like that. And it's it, it's really enjoyable to look at, and it shows you okay, this is what the one sheet looks like. This is what various ads look like. And, and you're right about the idea of of how to publicize it. And I think that part of it is, I mean, I have friends who do film publicity in the Detroit area. And I think what they do is instead of leaving it to the theaters anymore, they just hire press reps to do it. And a lot of times the press reps, there's not, you know, it's very rare that they do anything that's like with this, as we were talking about discreet charm, you know, hold an art contest. There's, I don't, I, I can't really think of anyone doing anything like that. So it really was a different era in terms of trying to get publicity for your film that you were going to book. And and I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that when you were a theater owner, and this was, of course, before the rise of the multiplex, 1972-73, you're probably an independent mom-and-pop theater or you were part of a small chain. So therefore, you know, you had to figure out how you're going to make this work because if you're going to book this film and it wasn't one of these, okay, it goes to 2,000 screens on Friday. It was – going to play in Dallas, it's going to play in Denver, it's going to play in Detroit, it's going to play in Boston, you know, and it would be scattered because you didn't have that saturation the way that they promote film nowadays. The other reason why people should take a look at press books is it's kind of the industry's dirty little secret that a lot of the material that's inside of a press book when it comes to the description of the film and some of the reviews of the film and all that you're going to see if you looked at many many reviews of the same film even today you're going to see the same phrases you're going to see the same you know structure of the story all this kind of stuff and that's mostly because of lazy reporting um and just people kind of going in and cribbing the press pack and and the press release for the film and just rather i mean i have known reviewers that don't necessarily see the films that they're reviewing and they rely solely on the press material for it. And they just kind of give it a new spin or they just copy and paste. It's not, you know, it's not uncommon to see that, which is very sad. And these days anymore, really when it comes to the major outlets, you know, a lot of the movie reviews are being written by, you know, like a, a service and then it just gets, you know, uh, you subscribe to the service if you belong, you know, if you're a newspaper and you just get that review in there. So it's something that's, that's always fascinating to see. I mean, I would see some of the same mistakes reported from one outlet to another, as far as things that happen in a film. And I kept wondering, why is this? Why do I see these things happening? And then I would, you know, realize later on, Oh, they were just cribbing from the press notes. Yeah. I remember when I worked in a theater in the late 90s, early 2000, there was – we would get press packets. It would just be a folder. It would usually be 8 or 10, uh, 8 by 10s, maybe slides if there were still slides around then that 
that people used. And usually there was a, um, you know, five to ten pages stapled that was production notes, you know, related to the film and maybe a few advanced reviews if they're, you know, it had played in Cannes or Sundance or something like that. So, I mean, there was still these materials, but it wasn't like this where it was more like here's how to promote it as well. Yeah, I don't know when that kind of stopped. I noticed when I have older, as far as like 70s films, I get a lot of that. When it comes to the 80s and 90s, especially by the 90s, I just did not see that anymore at all in the press materials. I'm not sure exactly when that phased out. Probably to your point, it was when the multiplexes were really, you know, in charge of stuff and they didn't really care about, you know, people are going to come to see the movie they're going to come to see the movie. We don't, we're not worried about, you know, marketing this to this particular segment of the audience. Yeah. So as for Bunuel, as for discreet charm of the bourgeoisie exterminating angel, what do you think? Um, is it something someone should take some time with? Yeah, definitely. You have put me on a new path when it comes to this and I'm, uh, really excited to see some more of his stuff. I went out and I saw a documentary about uh, Bunuel. Uh, I think it's called The Life of Don Luis Bunuel. And they played a lot of clips and they had interviews with his actors. They had some old interviews with him. They had some interviews with his kind of co-conspirators. And um, in fa- and Carrier was in there. And it was very fascinating to see some of these clips and to hear what people had to say about some of his films. And so now I really want to go out and and see more of his stuff. I I don't know if I'm going to go forward in time and see the last film or if I'm going to go backwards in time or how I'm going to do it or if I'm just going to kind of shotgun it and, you know, go through – you know, everything else. I mean, I had seen Unshandandalu, I don't know how many times, especially when they had the cut down version that they would show on MTV back in the day, but I have seen the, the full length version, which still plays today. I just saw that, I think last year at the, uh, in Chicago when they were doing one of their Tour in the Isles 24 hour movie marathons. That was the first film that they played. And seeing that on the big screen with an audience was wonderful and people were, right there they were riveted watching this and uh, so it it still works now after all these years and uh so i don't know if i am going to go lage door or if i'm going to skip to you know uh tristana or what what i'm going to do with it but what are your recommendations well my recommendations are is that basically you have to look at bunuel as three periods the first is as you were talking about, Shenandalu, Lajdor, uh, Land Without Bread, that's, that's the 20s, 30s. Then you get into the Mexican films. The high watermark in the Mexican films are Exterminating Angel, which you saw, and Los Alvedados, and then everything from about 1960 to the end. So Verdiana, um, Diary of a Chambermaid, Belle de Jour, um, Tristiana, Discreet Charm Bourgeoisie, Phantom of Liberty, and That Obscure Object of Desire. So uh, the only one that I would find weak in the later period, and it's just because it's even more sort of dream logic and there's no real characters that you latch onto, is Phantom of Liberty. Phantom of Liberty is much more small scenarios and things that happen, and then that leads to something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else. And that one is very episodic in that way. Very loose connections, but um, I like it. But it's not my favorite. the um, The ones that I go back to quite often are uh, Verdiana, Tristiana, um, 
discrete charm, obviously, obscure object of desire. And also, this one's a little bit more, if you were raised Catholic or you understand Catholicism, is the Milky Way. And that was from 68. So I would put that one in there if you have any interest in Catholicism or used to be a Catholic or are a Catholic or whatever. And that one is that one's interesting. It's about two guys who are on a pilgrimage from France to Saragossa, Spain. And as they go, they end up um, in these all of these different places where there's these discussions on what heresy is and blasphemy. And they're everywhere from common time to back in the time of Jesus. And Jesus is contemplating cutting off his beard to they're in this inn and there's a bunch of priests and they're playing cards, but they're betting with holy medals. Um, There's all of this. You know, there's there's so much stuff in it that's related to Catholicism that if you have no knowledge of Catholicism, it would probably just go over your head, or you would just find it funny because there's a lot of like strange imagery and sort of blasphemy in it. Yeah, he was not one to be shy about being blasphemous, which I really enjoy, and he really pushed the envelope. I mean, as you're going through the titles, I'm like, oh yeah, I have seen that. I've seen Lame Without Bread. I've seen Los Alvidados. But the one that really stuck out for me was I've seen Belle de Jour, and he really doesn't pull any punches when it comes to that film. No, I think that with uh, Belle de Jour, which is another one that that I love, and he worked with Catherine Deneuve twice. He worked with her on uh, Belle de Jour and also Tristiana, is that um, he took this this star who was, you know, one of the most beautiful women of, of her era in France as an actress and put her in these strange little films. And with Belle de Jour, there is a certain element of, of Catholicism and guilt and fetish. There's, um, Bunuel has a thing with fetish that comes up several times with, uh, especially with Diary of a Chambermaid. There's a whole thing about foot fetishism. Tristiana, there's a whole thing with foot fetish and leg fetish. Um, I think that he probably had a foot fetish or a leg fetish in some way, um, because it just keeps showing up. But it's it, it's interesting how he wants to have these conversations about desire, the dark places of desire, where desire can take us, and also sort of the human condition and the constraints on the human condition. I think that when you read something like John Baxter's book or you read My Last Sigh, which Jean-Claude Carré and uh, wrote, ghost wrote for Bunuel as his autobiography, you get the feeling that obviously growing up in Spain when he did, where he explains in his youth that it was very much like growing up during the Middle Ages because it was so kind of backward, this little town they lived in, um, that there's so much infusion of the church that even if you walked away from it, which, which he did, um, you still get a feeling that you're so steeped in it that you can never really truly get away from it. Well, he was the one who gave us the lovely contradictory phrase of, thank God I'm an atheist. So, or I'm an atheist, thank God, depending on how you want to translate it one way or another. And I've used that on people from time to time, and they kind of scratch their heads and look at me like I'm being funny. But the um, he he always was with jokes, and that's the thing that, that you realize when you watch his films. He was very humorous, uh, biting, dark, cynical. But I think at the same time, the one thing that I think probably unites his work too, and this is why I think it kind of relates to my own personality, is that he sees where humanity is and he wants it to be better. I think he's putting these things up. He's showing it through a funhouse mirror. He's trying to get your attention and say, you know, do we really need to do this? Is this really like, is this really the best that we can do? Aren't we better than this? 
Um, I, I don't think he's cynical for cynical sake. I think that he's cynical because he wants us to think and to come up with some new ideas on how things are kind of put together. And the one book that I've always kept on my shelf since I bought it years ago is uh, is My Last Sigh. And it's actually the last paragraph in My Last Sigh. And I think it's just sort of a beautiful idea that if he hadn't have written it, this is sort of how I would feel as well. And what it is is in the last chapter he's talking about, and he, he knows that he's going to be dead soon because he was in his 80s. And he goes, only have one regret. I hate to leave when there's so much going on. It's like quitting in the middle of a serial. I doubt that there was so much curiosity about the world after death in the past, since in those days the world didn't change quite so rapidly or so much. Frankly, despite my horror of the press, I'd love to rise from the grave every 10 years or so, go buy a few newspapers, ghastly pale, sliding silently along the walls, my papers under my arm. I'd return to the cemetery and read about all the disasters in the world before falling back to sleep safe and secure in my tomb. And I just like the idea of that, that here's a man who's interested in curiosity, but at the same time, I think realizes that humanity will not change all that much. He would just like to check in from time to time to see how it's going. Love it. All right. And with that, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Meet Mr. Jonathan behind the wheel. He's got the feel. This dud is no dud. He's bad. He's mean. He's a loving machine. He's the height of fashion, the peak of passion. Sends gangsters crashing and women thrashing. Black shampoo. He's got the touch they love so much. You tell Mr. Jonathan that I left. If he won't do me, nobody will. Does Mr. Jonathan make house calls? Hello, ladies. Artie taking good care of all of you? Artie just didn't have the equipment you have. He gives each pet a washing set. Men can't get him off their backs. Women can't get him out of their hair. Jonathan. Hello, Mr. Jonathan. This is our new receptionist. Do you like her? Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> God, she'll never drown. Well, I told you to watch who you're in it to, too, Denda. Oh, Hand me that thing. Hang him down. I'm going to give you the thrill of your lifetime. Don't give him no sass or he'll kick your ass. A woman entices. A chainsaw slices. He's mad. He's mean. He's a killing machine. Let him give you a black shampoo. Black shampoo. A Graydon Clark production starring John Daniels and Tanya Boyd. That's right. We are back next week with my favorite film of all time. This week we talked about Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which was Rob's favorite. Next week we're talking about Graydon Clark's Black Shampoo. We'll have an interview with Mr. Clark as well as his cinematographer on that film, Dean Cundy. So be sure to tune back in for that one. And thanks again to this week's special guests, John Baxter and Jean-Claude Carré. You can find out more about them and their work at our website, projection booth Com. And as Mr. Carrier said in our interview, to call him back in 15 years if the projection booth is still going strong, I'm still around and Mr. Carrier is still around, 
I still have his number, so I'll try to give him a call in 15 years, although he will be, uh, at that time, uh, 98 years old. All right. I <laughs> also want to thank you for listening. And, of course, you can return the favor for all the great free listing you hear on our show each and every week by going to projection-booth.com. You can leave a comment, leave a review on iTunes. And when you're at our website, hit that donate button, send us a few bucks for the quality listing you get week in and week out or up to almost 150 regular episodes, plus, of course, all the specials that we've done from time to time. And, of course, you know we'll have more heading into 2014. And you can listen through iTunes, Stitcher, and if you haven't gotten it yet, our brand-new app for your smartphone. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it from the Google Play Store for your Android. You can get it for your iPad or your Kindle Fire. And also, much like our show, review the app. Let folks know so that they can check it out. And, of course, that's 100% free. So that's what we're always about here. We're about spreading the knowledge, sharing quality film. And um, uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little uh, hungry here, Mike. Yeah, I, I just I haven't felt satisfied. I've really, I really keep wanting a meal and nothing ever happens. Well, I don't know. Maybe we can figure that out. Would you ever know? 